0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Quip, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible.
1: Last week, we began our journey of exploration into near-death experiences. We discussed many different viewpoints by various researchers into the phenomenon and looked at several specific cases as well. Tonight, in our last show of the year, Rich Haddam joins us again for a further, deeper look into this topic some examples of which seem to prove that one's soul can in fact travel outside of your dying body, and even communicate with those that are still living. What is the near-death experience millions of people have been through? Is it nothing but a trick of the mind, or is it something more?
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Birth in the physical
1: is death in the spiritual. Death in the physical is the birth in the spiritual.
2: Edgar Casey. Join us tonight for our final show of 2018 and the last part of our two-part series on near-death experiences.
0: we're back. From the dead. Is that possible? I think so. Okay.
2: It yeah. is. Yeah. Boy, I'll just we'll show see. myself out. You guys don't even need me. Well, that was we, we rehearsed that
0: for weeks. Finally. Yes. Uh,
2: yeah. Rich, I do want to thank you for trudging back here in this unbelievable blizzard here in the San Fernando Valley.
0: <laughs> well, the weather outside is frightful. <laughs> <laughs> but I must say yeah. that being in here in Blanket Fortiana at Christmas time, it is magical, you guys, with the lights. He actually didn't
1: leave. That's the ugly truth. He's been here <laughs> in the studio for a week. Well,
0: maybe it's cold outside. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like, no, there's no fault of ours. By the way. Yeah, no, there's uh, no
2: fault of ours. Yeah. But anyway, welcome back, Rich. We're so glad to have you back. Thank you for coming back. We just want to say happy holidays to all of our listeners. 2018 has been such a great year for us, mostly. <laughs> there mm. were some bad experiences.
1: <laughs> no, you needed but, a uh, uh, well, Oh, you, I deserved I it. Part two. <laughs> well, I can say as your friend, I don't know if you deserved it. You yeah. needed it. As your close friend, it well, helped
0: you. As your close former friend, Forrest thinks you deserved it. Yeah, <laughs> now that <laughs> I'm like, like
2: rattled and carrying yeah. uh, crystals around in my pocket. But uh, it really has been an amazing year. A lot of exciting things for Astonishing Legends. I'm really looking forward to next year. So much on the horizon. So it's been awesome. And Rich, it's really great to have you back at the end of essentially our fourth year. We're just past four years old here. So it's-, it's I know. Fun.
0: I'm honored to be among the uh, final shows of the year. And then hopefully next year, we uh, I can send you some more books and we can- uh, Crack a few more uh, open, you, and we, uh, we got.
2: To, you sent us both those amazing gift yeah, baskets yeah. with yeah. like the vertical <laughs> plane in it, and oh, like we got to read all that yeah. stuff. Oh, and would, don't expect
0: any more this year. <laughs> no, until well, you
2: read from yeah. last year, no more presents. <laughs> well, there was the one book yeah. that was just one chapter that I was like, oh my god, we could do a three part on this. It was the guy who's like reincarnated as the doctor, and then like, and he's yeah, doing yeah, yeah. surgery,
0: yes, as the person that had died. Oh, we, I want to. No, no, cover we'll, that. we'll talk about it. Okay, we'll get to that. And that went on for decades. A guy who every day. Would become possessed by a dead surgeon and do surgery on people. unbelievable. He was not a doctor, yes. nor did he play one on TV. And then friends yeah. of the dead doctor would come and talk to him and leave, including the guy's widowed wife and say, "Oh, that's him. He's uh, back. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, right. yeah uh, Rich, I got well,
1: Speaking an, of which, why isn't this a TV show that you're working on?
0: Who said it's not? I see. Ah, yeah. All right, Deadline Hollywood. Yeah, very good.
2: Okay, it's exciting to have you back, and we're going to uh, jump back into this near-death experience series. You've already heard a little bit from us in part one. Now we're going to, in part two, we're going to talk about some of the more unusual cases and a little bit more of the analysis about how they might or might not work. It's the
1: big argument we're going to get to. That is the big argument that you may not care, but guess what? You will at one point because everyone will experience one outcome. Yes. Yes. Of the big argument, <laughs>
2: yeah. well, you know, we thought we'd lead off this second part discussion with kind of an idea about death and also the moment of death. One of the things that I remember from reading uh, Doctor Sabum's book, and I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, but I'm doing it the same way each time, so I only need one email about it. <laughs> to be Sabum, yeah, or Sabum, 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 uh, Sabum okay. maybe he'll probably tweet at me, but. Uh, so one of the first things we thought we'd talk about, though, is a, is a little bit... And, th- and we got this idea, to be frank, from a, the Great Courses Plus course on this, from Professor Mark Berkson's course at the Great Courses Plus called Death, Dying, in the Afterlife, Lessons from World Cultures. Yeah. Because one of these lectures he had led off with talking about the moment of death. And, you know, you always hear this story about how lobsters are immortal, which they're not. That's apocryphal. <laughs> but what is it? I guess they keep growing. That's the thing. that They, mm. they do keep growing, but they're Until not Until they go to die. But it's not surprising that there's other stuff in the sea that that is essentially just regenerates. And so it gets to the whole question of what is life? The hydra, I think you were saying that Professor Bergson had said the hydra was made up of stem cells, so it's just regenerating itself? It regenerates itself, and also another wonder of nature
1: is the Japanese scarlet jellyfish, which is known as the immortal jellyfish, because unless it's killed or dies of disease, it's the only known creature that can revert to a state of infancy after it sexually matures. So like I said, unless it's killed, it will essentially never die. It just keeps regenerating itself. So, but it's a g- jellyfish. Do jellyfish have brains?
2: I can't remember. Rich, you would know this, right?
0: I really don't know. <laughs> you don't. So then, that's <laughs> no. my
2: question. Is that a sentient thing or is it more like a cooperation no. of a bunch of small individual things? Oh. And then the next question is, you know, is it, if it's not dying, would it have, can a jellyfish have an NDE? I don't know. Apparently not. uh, It goes back to being a baby. (laughs) Well, we're off track here. uh, But the idea
1: here, the big idea, is the definition, the idea of what is death. What is death? Can we come back to it? Because there are two concepts about death that seem to be universally accepted, and one is that death is universal. We all experience it, and it's also irreversible. There's no coming back. Everything living will one day die, and there is a point where you don't come back. However... As we've just seen, here, you don't come back here. I'm going to (sighs) say here. Oh, there's people who don't believe you go anywhere. You die and that's it. We're going to see those skeptical arguments later. Some very smart people like Stephen Hawking believe that that's it. You die, lights out, you don't go anywhere, which to me seems very sad. But a lot of people believe that and that's their prerogative.
2: The universe may not
1: care whether it's sad or not. It may just be the way it it is. It does what it's going to do. But the actual state here and what's important to us in this discussion is quote unquote Clinical death, what is that? Because that makes a difference in this argument and where
2: you you begin to measure it. It's not that concrete as we've learned. No, in fact, before we actually got into these episodes, I didn't think specifically this, but I thought it was more of a light switch. You know, it's either on or it's off. And then once you start looking into this, it's this really gray area because the body can be off and the consciousness can still be on, but not always. You can come back from death. Well, exactly.
0: You're talking about people coming back from a scientifically described clinical death Which means they weren't clinically dead because they came back.
2: Theoretically, because they came back. Or or they were clinically dead, but not
0: permanently dead. But now they say that death is a process.
2: Yes. Yeah. And at some point, it's irreversible. Dominoes.
1: Right. In your light switch scenario, think about it this way once you've clicked the switch, when you're looking at the light, it rapidly fades to black. And in that half a second of it being full on, going to full black, lights out. There's literally a gray area where it's dimming. And in that area, that may be where the NDE is happening, as we'll see in some of these cases, because there's an argument that some of these more famous cases like, well, they weren't totally dead when they had these experiences. They
2: were kind of somewhere in between. And when they came back, then they told the story. And the frustrating argument there that I think even some skeptics might make is, uh, well, if they came back, they weren't totally dead. They were right. never dead. Well, that's, that's Your heart right. stopped, your brain activity stopped. Maybe you weren't breathing, but you weren't actually dead.
0: Well, or your measurable brain activity stopped. Right. But maybe there's some activity that we uh, weren't able to measure.
1: Well, here's an interesting case study it's about Anna Bagenholb, and she was a skier, probably still, is, I, th- I think she's still alive. She was involved in a freak accident, and she was trapped in very, very cold water for about 80 minutes, freezing water. There's a whole article in the Lancet, the British Medical Journal, about this case because it was so interesting. She was brought back from, quote unquote, clinical death. Her body temperature had lowered to about 56.7 degrees Fahrenheit or about 13.7 degrees Celsius. It is one of the lowest body temperatures recorded for a person to come back from, to survive. Yes. By the way, she is still alive. Okay, good. Just yes, for the I'm, record. I'm, was, I'm very glad about that. Born in yeah, 1970. That's cool. Well, as Rich said here, the definition that low, low body temperature kept her from the, in bold letters here, irreversible state of death, where you've now gone past the point of no return, you don't come back. And the extreme cold slowed her metabolism so much so that her tissues required less oxygen to survive. So that plunge into that really cold water really kept her alive. However, when she was brought in to the doctors,
2: she looked dead. To these doctors, I mean, basically just looking at her and feeling her, she was dead. Yeah. Dr. Mads Gilbert, an anesthesiologist and the chief of the hospital's emergency room, he said, quote, she has completely dilated pupils. She is ashen, flaxen white. She's wet. She's ice cold when I touch her skin. And she looks absolutely dead. Yeah. Well, they revived her by warming her blood up externally through a
1: machine, putting it back in her body. And it was a, a slow process to recovery, but she eventually fully recovered. The only side effect really is that she's got tingling in her hands and feet, I think. To this yeah, day. she's had some
2: nerve damage. And Dr. Right. Gilbert also said that they hooked an EKG up to her and it showed no signs of life. But she was brought back. But there obviously is
1: deep down somewhere in there is an irreversible line. Right. Uh, but here's a funny quote. Again, that was <laughs> in the lecture series. Dr. Jill Coward, he had a pretty interesting comment and it was, quote, this case really does bring it home to us how cautious one has to be before diagnosing death and people who are cold. There's an old saying that nobody is dead until they are warm and dead.
0: But let's leave my wedding night out of
1: this. Oh, oh dear.
0: But the important thing to remember about Dr. Jell Coward is what a cool name they have. I
1: know, yeah. <laughs> but this statement here, this story, is about the state and definition of death, or at least even clinical death. It doesn't seem to be all that concrete. The veil to the other side might be fluid, like a curtain in a breeze. The idea, though, is that there is a point where it's irreversible, but uh, that's hard to measure because by our clinical standards, you can get very close to that. Yeah, there can be a flat EEG, no brain activity, but there's been some crazy stories out there
2: where people have defied the odds. Okay, we talked a little bit about this in part one, but now it's time to get a little more in depth on the negative or distressing near-death experience, which I frankly didn't even know these existed.
1: Wait, are they the same thing, Rich? The negative and one that's just kind of slightly unpleasant? Well, sounds the same to me. Distressing?
0: Well, you've got to get into the notion of perspective. Someone is coming back from an experience and describing it. Now, there are features they are describing which you or I might look at and go, that sounds really scary, but maybe they didn't perceive it that way. Right. If you and I go see a scary movie, you might be a lot more scared than I am. I might go, that wasn't so bad. And you might say, that was the most terrifying experience of my life. Right.
1: That's an interesting way to describe a movie experience too. It's like, wow, that was a little distressing or just disturbing. And that was totally negative for my life. I did did not need that.
0: Some people experience all of the steps of the typical pleasant near-death experience, but for them, it's scary. It's like, well, first I was falling through this dark tunnel toward a bright light. And I didn't know what was going to happen next. And I was terrified. And then suddenly the light became overwhelming. And then there were there were dead people and there were weird spirits that I did not recognize. Yeah. And I didn't know what was going to happen to me. And they're describing all the things other people describe in a positive way, but their experience of those things was negative. So that is a kind of distressing NDE. Right. So in that case, what we're saying analytically
2: is that the NDE is defined by the filter between the experience and the person experiencing it, as opposed to this being organic to the NDE itself.
0: I think we have to say that. Right. I don't think we have a choice. We're hearing from a person about an experience they had, they're going to interpret it. Okay. Now, most People who have had these experiences interpret and communicate them to someone else as extremely positive, so positive they don't even have words to describe how positive it was. But then we have to take it equally seriously when people say, well, I had a really bad experience. But there's a difference between people describing what might
2: be interpreted as a positive experience in a negative way and people describing what would, to a majority, still seem like an intensely negative experience, like... I walked into a room and there was a dude there with a pitchfork and a bifurcated tail. There's no one who's going to be like, oh, that sounds fun, right?
0: It doesn't sound fun, but there are people who have those experiences and yet don't describe them as being the worst experience in their lives. And some people have near-death experiences and their report back is fairly neutral. Right? These things happened, but I didn't feel euphoria. I didn't feel bathed in love. Some events happened and uh, then I woke up. Okay. I always go back to, let's really listen to the witnesses. Let's listen to what people say occurred in their lives and try to get a sense of what they're trying to communicate.
2: There is a part of it though. It's the ineffability of it, right? That we can say there is no way to communicate what happened effectively. So you come back and you're just kind of fumbling to describe the experience.
0: Right. And there's often a level of frustration that people report because they're like, they want to convey the experience accurately. And they will often, often say, there are no words. And sometimes it's very specific. They will say, I woke up, I felt great, bathed in love. I was in a meadow and there were flowers that were colors that don't exist on earth. And I want to describe those colors, but I can't because I don't have words. And that one kills me. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm like, what in the world could that color be?
2: Yeah. Well, but the have seen it and yeah. they're
0: picturing the color and they can't tell you what it is. That's amazing.
1: Well, I think because the color goes beyond a visual description, it's also a feeling and an emotion. Yep. And a state of being. You know what I'm saying? It's it's a reality that is not existing here, so it's hard for me to explain that well, to you.
0: Well, and couple that with people reporting that the beings they do encounter, whether they are dead relatives or spiritual figures, they're communicating not with voices like you communicated in that one you read. It's not... Uh, voice box to ear not yes, voice right. box mind to, ear to mind. And when you're communicating mind to mind, you're not using words. I hate to keep coming back to it. Cause it's all about me, but <laughs> we, we did just do the mm-hmm.
2: Sally series. And part of the reason that it was 13 and a half hours was the yeah. ineffability of it. But what I could say is, you know, we could play the EVP for everybody, but I still, in all the time that we spent on that series, don't feel that I was ever able to accurately describe how I felt when I first heard it and how the house felt to me when I first heard it, and I don't think I'll ever be able to describe that to anyone. Yeah, it, but I tried, because right. that was not an NDE, but I can relate to people in this position. Right, yeah, try, try desperately saying. to communicate
0: yes. an experience that is not
2: Yes, you just physical. can't communicate it, exactly. That portion of it, I couldn't communicate. There was part of the communication that I received that had nothing to do with the EVP. And I can't explain that. Think
0: about trying to describe a meal you had to somebody. Yeah. And it's like, well, it was really, really delicious. It was awesome. It was amazing. Sometimes it's hard to find words when the emotion takes over.
1: Right. Here's my analogy to the Sally House story. And, And some people have teased us and we got a few complaints. Like I had to sit through all of that just to get to a hyped up piece of audio that lasted two minutes. The whole context, the whole story is not about that piece of audio, that piece of audio is a catalyst. It's a trigger to some, to some it's nothing. It's something different to everyone that heard it. There are some commonalities in some categories, but so many people reacted to it differently. But again, with Scott's story, that's just one small piece because it is 13 and a half hours of an experience that we're trying to describe, it's a journey. Much like the NDE is a small experience within a person's life, that is where you have to take the whole context. What were your experiences like growing up? Like Atwater says, is it tailored to you? And you experience and take from it, whatever the survey questions were, you take from it what you needed to. And that's the purpose of our story. So it's like people saying like, well, they're trying to analyze the experience itself. But to the person who experiences it, it is a small part of a context within a whole life story.
0: I'm Jessamy Barker, and when I'm not learning about United States culture by watching old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
2: Our overall point here is that not all near-death experiences are positive. There's lots of different studies, and they kind of vary in what they're saying. But according to these studies, you know, somewhere between 9 and 23% of people have had A negative or a bad near-death experience. Out of people that have had NDEs in general. Right. And it depends on who's doing the study, you know, because PMH Atwater had said a different number. Dr. Sabum said a different number because everyone has their own little groups from different areas, different ways that they found their people. But the point is they're out there. They're not the majority, but they're out
0: there. Well, and Nancy Evans-Bush wrote the book, Dancing Past the Dark, Distressing Near-Death Experiences. And she makes a really good point, which is If you have a great experience and your experience made you feel that God spoke to you, bathed you in his love and told you that everything was going to be okay, that might be an experience you're more comfortable sharing with other people Mm -hmm. than "Mm, something really scary happened to me. And it's hard to then step back from that moment of self-judgment or self-questioning, which is, why did I have the bad one? Right. It's kind of like Charlie Brown. Everyone else got a Snickers bar. Why did I get a rock? <laughs> well, yeah. There's, a
1: rich part of that is the embarrassment of telling other people you got a rock because right. Dr. Bruce Grayson and Nancy Evans Bush categorize these experiences, these negative ones into three different types. And if you have one of these to your point and you tell people, it's like, geez, what kind of a jerk are you? Like, you well, know, what right. I'm there's, there's judgment mean, to that. It's like somebody you... like Forrest is going to judge you. <laughs> Why is he going to hell? <laughs> Yeah, yeah yeah but there are three types that they categorized here the prototypical n d e and that is like the dark tunnel with the light, the bright light at the end. However, in this case, the joke goes that light might be a train coming towards you
0: right it's, like like we were talking about, yeah. yeah, it's got all the elements, but they're experienced in a negative way.
1: What you're feeling coming towards you or you going towards it is not good for you. It's not something you want. And again, that's that visceral feeling that's hard to describe, but it's not good. The second one is a sense of non-existence, or, this is interesting, the eternal void. So maybe you're experiencing what a lot of people believe, especially those of the atheist bent, is that there is nothing after death. You die and that's lights out. However, in this case, you're experiencing that lights out for eternity. And that's gotta be awful. That's terrible. You're aware of the nothingness, the void, this state of non-existence forever. And the third one is the classical hell imagery. And that's the one that everybody pictures with, as Scott said, the, the devil poking you with a the pitchfork. There's demons tormenting you. You're in forever agonizing pain for all eternity.
0: So let's talk about Nancy's experience. And yes. I'm paraphrasing from what I've read in the book. I would say that she had a category two. A a sense of non-existence or eternal void. So here's the story she tells. And again, I'm relating it to you in my own words. This was an experience she had during childbirth. And it seems there was some blood loss and that's what triggered this near-death experience. But in her experience, she traveled up out of her body through the ceiling of the hospital and then into the air, could see the whole city went higher and higher, almost like you're on a rocket and you're going into outer space and the world sort of uh, recedes The great glass elevator. Yeah, and you're just flying out into space and now she's experiencing space. And at this point, things are kind of okay, but she keeps going and keeps going and it feels like she's going further and further Mm. and further and further out into the void of space. Then these things start to appear, these circles. And they're sort of clicking, clacking, clicking, clacking at her. And they're going black to white to black to white. And they're clicking, clacking. What are these things? And they get closer. And as they get closer, she perceives that they have intelligence. And they have consciousness. And they begin communicating with her. And they begin telling her that she was never alive. That her entire existence was a joke that was played on her. That not only did she never really exist, no one she ever knew existed. And her life did not exist. And she found herself arguing back with these clicking clacking white to black to black to white circles that were taunting and mocking her and she was saying but i know details of the lives of my friends and loved ones and they're like no that was all fake too that's all part of the joke and now you will exist as nothing for eternity and then they receded and she was in this place of contemplating that nothingness and non-existence for quite some time before she came back into her body. And she eventually recovered and it was a successful childbirth, but she felt totally hopeless and desolate and distressed. And she also felt that she couldn't talk about this because if that's what happens when you die, nobody wants to hear this story. You're right. This right. ain't going to get you on the Phil Donahue show. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Although oddly there were people on the Phil Donahue yeah. show who yeah, there there sure. sure. did share negative yeah. uh, near-death experiences, but still. So she wrestled with it. And I can't imagine something more lonely and terrible than having this, what you feel is cosmic knowledge that is so not good. And you can't talk to anyone about it. Right. And you've got to raise your kids. She had another child and you can't really tell your, nobody wants to hear it. people who have good near-death experiences worry about communicating it because they think they'll be called crazy or their experiences will be somehow laughed off. In her case, it was even worse. Now, what's interesting is that she goes on to say that it was years later she went to visit a friend and they were chatting and uh, she saw some books on their table. And one of them was a book by Jung and it had the yin-yang symbol. So it's a circle with the two teardrops that interlock. yeah. And she lost it. She's like, oh my God, she's thinking to herself, those are the things that I saw. Those are the things that were talking to me. And how fascinating is that, that this sort of archetype, you know, of course, Jung would call it part of the uh, collective unconscious, this sort of good and bad, yin and yang, light and dark were these things that were tormenting her. Yeah. But it's also the thing that made her realize she really needed to look into this. And she began looking into it and researching near-death experiences and has become a leader in the field in terms of trying to interpret what any near-death experience means, but especially how do you process a negative near-death experience? Right.
1: See, that goes to my point earlier, though, talking about not seeing it as something that somebody deserves. None of us are in a position to gauge that, but it was a push for her to get into this, and maybe that's what the point was, because there's also, with other negative experiences, people talking about things that were kind of demonic, tormenting, taunting them, making fun of them. You're a joke. Your life's a waste. You should die. You, just, you should come to hell. And we're going to rip you apart and having those kinds of number three, the classical experience, but having that kind of tormenting, but taunting like yeah. these things were taunting her. It's like your life's a joke,
0: but sort of in a secular way. I mean, yeah, these, exactly. these were not presenting themselves as little red devils with pitchforks.
1: No, but it's something that maybe was more adaptable to her that she was able to, you know what I'm saying? Like it is more digestible intellectually for her in a, maybe in a way.
0: I would say that if anything good came out of her particular near-death experience, it was her stepping forward and saying, you're not alone if you had one of these. Right. Because I'll talk about mine, and maybe you can talk about yours. And because look, we don't know what these things are. We don't know if they truly are visions of the next life. And we also don't know if any of these things are an arrival and a final destination. Because as we've talked about, there are people whose near-death experience has started out negative, and then has evolved into a positive experience. I don't think anyone having an experience like this has to immediately arrive at a conclusion that says, I'm a terrible person, the afterlife is filled with torment and despair, and that's all we have to look forward to for eternity once we die.
1: Yeah, well, that's another interesting point about your attitude kind of going in, or I guess, your outlook on life before and after, because Bruce Grayson finds in his work, interesting quote here, surrender to the process of dying seemed to permit deeper, effective, and transcendent aspects of NDEs. And our point earlier talking about this importance to a state or attitude of non-clinging to your life, all the things you thought were important in life, is that this is just a play. You're going through this right now. You're meant to learn something from it. But don't cling to it. It's not everything. There's a big whole uh, eternity out there. And the more that you are yielding to this change, of all things, including death, sometimes that affects the NDE itself or the type of experience you have and the life you have after that.
0: What's interesting about this to me is that I just read this book by Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind, and it's about Mm -hmm. psychedelic drugs and how they're kind of reemerging from decades of exile and are finding a place in therapy for people with terminal illnesses, people with addiction issues, depression issues, various mental health issues. And in discussing an LSD experience, when people are going through them with a guide who's there sort of coaching them through it and then giving them a certain amount and creating an environment that will hopefully not be alarming and distressing. One of the things they say is you may very well encounter something scary, some insect guy or some weird monster (laughs) or something in your LSD experience. And they go, don't freak out. Don't run away. Turn toward that thing Mm. and say, why are you here? And what do you have to teach me? And what is your gift to me? And if you do that, that thing often then sort of melts away and transforms into something else. And you go into the next chapter of your LSD experience. And as long as you turn toward the alarming things and face them head on and sort of engage them.
1: Yeah, face your fears.
0: Yeah, they become less threatening and your experience goes on and on and on. And they say, just try to ride it. Just try to ride it. (laughs) Ride it out, man. Yeah,
1: yeah. A lot of the research seems to point to the positive NDE experience can be more likely with spiritual practice and preparation. So I don't know if that's a life of being a Zen Buddhist monk. And then that's cool. Or just a general attitude of the people before And that we're talking about, like, how do you pull people or what they thought of themselves before this happened and how they felt afterwards? Well, how did you feel about death before this? It's like, well, I was really uptight. I'm scared of it. And, and like you said, then I was actually dying and I was so freaked out. I was running from it, denying it, and it didn't turn out great. The research does seem to show that your attitude before about life in general and dying and any spirituality you may or may not have seems to affect maybe the positivity or negativity of the NDE. Sometimes. Sometimes, I, I yeah. mean,
0: you know, there are many, many people with no preconceived notions of an afterlife, either good or bad. And yeah, they many, still have a
1: great one. Well, and, yeah. there,
0: and there's many atheists who are like, right. look, before my near-death experience, I absolutely believed that there was nothing, or I did not believe there was anything after yeah, right, death. Right. My viewpoint was strictly materialist. Right. And now I've had this experience, and... In many cases, it has changed them and made them feel that, well, maybe that was a, a premature uh, <laughs> right. evaluation of exactly what is next, and uh, I'll be a bit more open-minded.
1: I think that's the best outcome, is that let's not make any final decisions yet when you don't have all the uh, elements to the story here.
0: The joke I always make to my atheist friends is, if when we die, if they're right, we'll never know. But if I'm right, I'll be there to make fun of them. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. There's that joke that David Foster Wallace makes that it's the atheist not going a blizzard in Alaska and uh, he's worried he's going to die. And of course, there's no atheist in Foxhole. So he's praying desperately, God, if you're there, please, just this one time, I beg you, if there's anybody there watching over us, please save me. I, I don't want to die. And then two hunters come by and they rescued him. And he gets back to town. He's warmed up and he survives. And his friend said like, well, there's your miracle, man. Don't you believe in a higher being now and a higher presence? He's like, no, two hunters came by. That's the joke is like, that's how you see it. Yeah.
0: God Uh, didn't save me. Those hunters did. Exactly.
2: I've got to jump in here about one of our original inspirations, Unsolved Mysteries. There is an episode of that show and one of the stories on, I can remember, and I can't remember the names or where this took place, but there was a woman, an older woman who had gone hiking and had gotten lost in the mountains. And she was lost in the mountains and she was in real danger of possibly freezing to death overnight. It was late. She'd been out forever. And there was a rancher or a cowboy, essentially, who had the horse, the cowboy hat and all of that and knew the land. And he saw a thing on her, about her on the news And he said, I know where she is. That was it. He just had that feeling. Wow. And he got on his horse, and he rode up into the mountains, into the middle of nowhere, and rode right up to her and rescued her. No idea how he knew that. That happens all the time. That
1: was one of our Christmas miracle stories. That couple that, I think they got a flat tire. They pulled over by the side of the road. Yeah. They find the baby in a hat box. Yeah. It wasn't right next to the car. It was like, she just felt like, I'm going to go walk around. Yes. I'm going to walk up the road a little bit. And then she hears some murmuring from the box. And, uh...
2: By the side of the road. It's a miracle. I'm sorry. I just got to chill. What? Sorry. I just, I was, we, we talked to, the... yeah, she died yesterday. Oh Yeah. What? I just looked her up because oh, I remember we talked about her. God, my hair is standing up. <laughs> uh hat box baby, Sharon oh. Elliott, who spent years trying to solve the old Arizona mystery as to who left her there, died at 86. I found the news story. I was like, I wonder if she's still alive. And it came up while you were talking and it said one day old. I look at, she passed away yesterday.
1: Oh,
2: well, she was 86.
1: She was 86,
2: and she got uh, 86 years she
0: shouldn't have. Well,
2: yeah, lucky to be alive, really. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, very fortunate. But did uh, quite an extraordinary life. I I'm thought. sorry, she died Saturday. The story came out yesterday, but yeah, there you go. Anyway, wow, God, that was weird. Jesus. Yeah, she uh, never figured out who her parents were, the biological
1: parents. Yeah, but she found her miracle. Life. It's just yeah.
2: interesting to me how you were talking. to...
1: You know, well, it's it a joke. No,
2: David Foster Wallace yeah. is a joke. You know, and, and, yeah, but and there's the guy, a,
1: uh, just some guy saw it on the news, and he just got a sense like, I think I know where she is, and she was in a parking garage, and he, uh-huh. you know used for like a like a whole day people were searching all over that area and he found her you know so that happens quite a bit more often than you would think
2: so the next thing that we were going to talk about was something again <laughs> I really went into this green. Mm. I'd never heard of until Rich brought this up when we had dinner the other night at our pre-pro meeting, which is mostly (laughs) where we drank and spent three hours not having the 20-minute conversation (laughs) we needed to have. What exactly is the fear-death experience?
0: The fear-death experience is when the body is not in any sort of mortal danger at all, and yet a person has a near-death experience. So when might this happen? This is the kind of story people tell when they say I was driving down the road, the road curved, there was a patch of ice, my car started to slide off the road, it was spinning around. Then they describe what sounds like a near-death experience. So there is some danger there. But they're not let me finish. Yeah. Then after their near death experience, they find themselves just on the side of the road. They're okay. still in their car. Their head okay, hasn't gotcha. hit anything. So in other words, they weren't in the, the middle of cardiac arrest. Okay. Right, they right, just, right. they thought they were going to die. They oh. suddenly have an experience that maybe a, just a, a split second where they go through the tunnel, the life review, they see a dead relative, they communicate with a spirit figure and then they're right back. But you no know, actual physical, mortal danger. And I bring that up because it kind of speaks in a weird way against many of the skeptics' arguments. This is not a dying brain. Right. This is not something oh, Physiologically. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point.: Caused by a lack of oxygen. It's a momentary, intense fear of death. Now, here are two theories. One you have a soul, you have a consciousness that can separate from your body. In that moment, you think you're going to die. And so you go into that process where your soul, for want of a better word right now, it's not a very secular term, but I'm using it for ease of storytelling. (laughs) Your soul disattaches from your body, thinking it's going to die. Mm. But then it doesn't, and so it comes back. And in the moment it separates, it begins the dying process and it starts experiencing the things it would experience now. If you really want to go down that road and say this was a true mystical experience, it might be that you were about to die, and in another timeline, your car would have flipped over, exploded, and you'd be dead. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> right. You knew yeah, where right. I was going. And oh, then I, I have totally another you. one on that. Okay, is that Forrest was talking at
2: one point about this idea that your consciousness is outside, or there's this part of you that exists outside your body. That is the astral and there's self. A, right. And there's a thread coming the down. Silver the silver cord. So then yeah. it's like the astral self is like, oh crap, this guy's a goner. <laughs> right. Right? (laughs) We're pulling out. Pull out. Get out. Get out. Get out. out. (laughs) Injectors. Yeah. Well, you And then can, it's like, yeah. oh, wait, wait, it's okay, it's okay. We're going back in.
1: We're well, good. You can't sever the cord, because yeah. that, to some spiritualists and people who study this uh, with a spiritual bent, that is the irreversible part of that. That's yes. the point of no return, once the cord is cut. So what it sounds like to me is that Robert Monroe and the Monroe Institute, what they teach is that you can induce yourself, a OBE, which is connected to the NDE, as we talked about in part one, the out-of-body experience, which is not near death, that's a willfully initiated state of being that seems to be outside of yourself. When you talk about the, I don't know if you want to talk about this now, but it's the astral self that resides, the materialists and the skeptics would say, this is the woo-woo part of it, but your higher self exists outside of your body, and is kind of like the captain of the ship, whereas you, your conscious everyday gray matter self in your body, you're the pilot, you're the guy steering the wheel, and not always well. You know, the astral self says like, hey, you know what? There's rocks coming. You crash into them every time. Don't do that. It's like, and the U pilot's like, hey, those rocks look cool. I'm going to steer it this way. So it's that struggle to guide yourself in the right path, but you don't always do it. So, you know, so there's a higher soul self that uh, looks over you. And that's also a Buddhist thing. That's what we were talking about before. And this is in the movie, What the Bleep Do We Know? When they talk about having a recurring pattern of negative behavior whatever it is. You overeat. Your brain uh, gets addicted to it. You get, you get, yeah. Yes, you get addicted to the feeling, and you do it all over again. You are addicted in this pattern, and one way to break that is to imagine yourself looking down on yourself like an OBE, observing this bad behavior, and that snaps... The chain, the negative cycle of this recurring. Uh, I tried uh, that, that with the whiskey, tonight, d- <laughs> the whiskey we're having tonight, and I'm
0: still drinking the whiskey we're having. Well, that, that's fine. I'm outside your body looking at you, <laughs> yeah. and I am definitely saying you should not be drinking that whiskey <laughs> yes. anymore.
1: See, the astral captain of Scott's soul ship is saying, like, dude, just not the whole bottle. <laughs> One or two glasses is
0: fine. We're, we can well, handle that. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I it brings me back to this uh, LSD discussion. Yeah, when. Some people on LSD sort of uh, experience the disillusion of their ego. Right. And then they experience what is commonly reported as a a feeling of connectivity. We're all part of one universal thing. I'm connected to everything and everyone. We are all connected. I'm not an individual because the ego drops away. And when that person emerges from the LSD experience, they do have a different perspective. And this is where it's sometimes used for... Treatment of addiction. Often people come back and they're like, you know, smoking just doesn't seem that important anymore. Yeah, and the, you know, You've smoking is connection. tough, but physiologically, right, you're chemically addicted to nicotine, and it can be very, very difficult to break that addiction. Sure, and these people have one experience on LSD. And they come back and go, you know what? I got a different view of what the world is and what reality is. And um, smoking, it just doesn't seem that important. It anymore. sounds <laughs> a lot
2: like the outcome of hypnosis in some cases. I'm only just now thinking of it. It, but it can be, like,
1: but uh, people are doing that. Ayahuasca is now the, the new craze of, as far as like hitting your reset button. It's okay. Emotionally, what We're, is that? ayahuasca i've it's, heard of it but yeah I don't know it's, what a, it is. it's a psychotropic drug i believe there's a, a series on vice uh, the cable tv channel yeah, yeah. it's a kentucky ayahuasca and it's a reality tv show of people going through these experiences and relating to others you know people that have ptsd or emotional problems or addiction problems and uh it's a radical short burst way to yeah again hit your reset button and get you out of yourself Because, again, as we just said, that's the problem with you, is that you just keep repeating these patterns. But it's also something akin to what Rich said here that reminded me of, is the DMT
0: dump. Oh, right, yes.
1: dimethyltryptamine.
0: Well, this is the second theory about the fear-death experience, that physiologically, when you think you're in mortal danger, your pineal gland, where it is believed that DMT is produced and stored, it suddenly floods your brain and your body with DMT, which is a psychedelic drug. Dimethyltryptamine. Yes. Exactly. And it can be created synthetically or derived from plants and then be injected. And experiments have been done. Rick Strassman wrote a book called DMT, the Spirit Molecule, Mm -hmm. where he talks about the experiments that he conducted and what his patients went through. But anyway, the theory is that there's this DMT dump that just your body is flooded with it, like adrenaline. Yeah. Okay. And because it is a psychedelic drug, like LSD, it creates the near-death experience. Yeah. And this has become a very popular notion and a very popular explanation for the near-death experience. But what's interesting about this is that science has not established that the pineal gland actually produces DMT.
1: No, that's a theory in itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that, as an explanation... Does DMT exist in the body? It is believed to exist in the body. It exists in nature all over the place.
2: I guess my question with this is, and I always come back to this, if you were going back to a scientific reason for the near-death experience, and there was a DMT dump inside your brain that is essentially giving you a type of high that is simulating the experience, and you believe in science, and that's that's a scientific reason for this happening... What is the evolutionary reason that your mind would have
0: developed to do that? There's a couple of theories on that. What are they? One is it just happens.
1: The second <laughs> just because. is... That's the just because. Right. The yeah.
0: second is that DMT is this strange substance that actually facilitates the soul's journey from the physical body into the next world. Mm-hmm. And so, so that DMT dump, that flooding of the brain is to disengage your consciousness from your physical brain. And that's the WD-40. Yeah. Well, (laughs) before they yank the thing out of your head in the matrix. Yeah, that loosens up the (laughs) the soul, the consciousness, and allows it to move physically. Because if this stuff really does happen, if consciousness can separate from the human body and move on, there is a future in which even our physical science might be able to confirm that science can confirm a lot of invisible things that actually do exist radio waves. And Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea being that the soul or consciousness may need a physical means to separate from the body and go on to its next thing that one day may be measurable. One day we may have the ability to measure the afterlife dimension
1: well that's the first step to the big debate that we're we're heading towards here but dmt has been described as the businessman's high because it's a very short intense burst of this psychotropic experience which doesn't necessarily lead to an out-of-body experience but that's kind of what it is and and also similar to the near-death experience but i remember there's a, i think there's a famous story i don't know if it's apocryphal or not but pete townsend of the Who taking it while playing at a concert on stage and seeing himself play a guitar solo like 50 feet above the stage, watching him. And he had a very intense experience. And then uh, like 15, 20 minutes later, Back down in, into Pete Townsend.
2: Oh, well, I thought you were going to say he jammed his hand into the whammy bar because he did that the once. windmill. No, no, yes. Yeah. The,
1: win, the windmill motion. I don't know how he controlled himself, but he said, like, yeah, I was floating in the air looking down at myself. So that's a common experience where you you have that. But to reach his point, maybe it is a biochemical tool for this spiritual mechanism.
0: Yeah, and that's going to be hard to prove. But no, you in may the never meantime, get there. hopefully, more experiments with psychedelics will be done and uh, we might understand more about how these drugs interact with the brain right. and these various structures that we have, consciousness, ego, whatever those things are and how they're affected by these drugs. And the people who have those experiences, well, how does it change their lives? Because yeah. there are people who do DMT or LSD right, and who, like those who experience a near-death experience, come away from it changed for life.
1: Well, that's interesting though that uh, that theory that it is merely biochemical, rests on the pineal gland, the chemical is coming from there, but we don't totally know that. But here's a little thing that uh, is totally spurious, but I thought was a fun anecdote that I've heard of before. The ancient Egyptians had knowledge of the pineal gland, and it is thought some would, in a procedure, maybe do some trepanning, you heard of that, where they, they yeah. cut a hole in the, your skull, would take a long needle and pierce it, because somehow the piercing would uh, release the magical juices of whatever's in there, or the scarring would do something and actually give you enhanced mental powers. Oh, totally unresearched.
2: I don't know. I just heard that story. I thought it was cool. Where did uh, be, you? Where, I don't. Yeah. That's why I wanted to do a podcast with Forrest. Where on earth would you hear that story? Oh, Bob. that Egyptians <laughs> trepanned skulls, poked the pineal gland to achieve a higher state of consciousness that's a story you heard just what at, at the I
1: grocery store right
2: now you don't hear it there of course you it's
1: the internet. and books
0: is an eternal dorm room <laughs> with half a bottle of red yeah yeah there and and everyone's talking about what blue means to you and what blue <laughs> means to me
1: nobody nobody comes up with this i'm not we're not staring at our uh, shoes These are the kind of stories that uh, I have fun talking about with my close friends that don't totally roll both eyes. The other one, though, is that, and I believe this may even be on the Wikipedia page, if you look up the Frankish kings, kings in the Middle Ages, we're talking about the 300s, you know, Pippin the Fat
0: and all those guys. I have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, then.
1: He's going somewhere. So then a lot of their skulls, the kings, were trepanned. Oh, yeah. So the one theory is that it was done for mental abilities, not to relieve uh, overheating. And I'm wondering if that was part of the idea, too, because they were reported, the legend has it, that the Frankish kings had superior mental powers, ESP, perhaps, telekinesis. And therefore, you're the guy who got made king, or that was a product of being king, is that uh, you were exposed to these magical procedures.
0: Well, it does seem like the pineal gland has been in part of human mythology for a lot longer than we have actually known what it does. Right. I mean, it's still it, mysterious. Well, I mean, H.P. Lovecraft was writing stories about people with these sort of hyperactive pineal glands that allow them to see into other realities. So, Well, there you go. That's, yeah. It, and you know, and it, it's, that's it's a little bit unclear why he selected that of all things. But then later researchers have said, well, yeah, if it is connected to the production of DMT, it creates an experience in which you think you are looking into another reality.
1: Well, it is mysterious. I think what they do know is that at least <laughs> it produces melatonin, which is a serotonin-derived hormone, which we know most of us modulate sleep patterns in uh, your circadian and seasonal cycles, it says here. It does a function, but again, as Rich said, it's got a lot of legend and lore around it as being something more mysterious and uh, mystical with properties. I thought that was interesting, though, because, again, that all ties in, you know, ancient Egyptians, afterlife... Egyptian magic, all that stuff, the mysterious Frankish kings. Look that up. You'll enjoy that story. They're very mystical. And that goes into the Merovingians and all that kind of stuff. Oh. That into. But here's something, talking about other cultures, Rich, one argument is that maybe they're all biochemical hallucinations triggered by some natural or unnatural man-made process, but at the end of the day, hallucinations. Well, if they're happening around the world, which they seem to be, why aren't they culturally specific or are they?
0: Well, they are. And it's actually an argument against it being a physiological experience. Right, because, because then it was, wouldn't, yeah.
1: it's like somebody's hallucination. It's like if you're from India, it'd be full of Indian cultural artifacts and archetypes and all that.
0: Right. So while they might generally take the same shape, certain elements are largely absent in certain cultures. For instance, when well, you look at the life review and the experience of going through a tunnel, so these are largely absent in stories from traditional cultures in New Zealand, Australia, Africa, Guam, and parts mm. of South America. And when I say traditional cultures, I'm not talking about, you know, the people who live in Sydney right, and right. the doctors New Western and lawyers. lawyers. Sure. We're, we're talking about traditional primitive cultures right, in right, some cases. Right. I mean, th- there is a theory that as a human being and a cultural being, you are co-creating part of your experience. But then if you believe any of this at all... Mm. Well done. If we do go on to another life, yeah, I don't think it's that hard to believe that part of that experience would be continuing on with what your identity is, because yeah. that's often claimed to be part of the next life. Your identity and your personality continues into this non-physical realm. Right. Until you are a totally refined soul that is nothing but a flame of energy, you're going to retain some trappings of your physical incarnation. hmm but the point is this. <laughs>
2: You're blowing his mind. No, man.
0: I'm just like, yeah. all of the way
2: that I'm perceiving this is so different now because of my just recent prior experience. Oh, that's awesome. Like if this was before last July and before I went to that house in Kansas, I I would be having a whole different set of questions about this. But now I'm 100% convinced that we can exist outside our bodies. Yeah. I just believe that. Just yeah. throwing that and out there. And it's an individual yeah. thing. and yeah.
0: And maybe that's all it can ever be. Even if science one day proves it, it being consciousness can exist separate from the body, there will be people who don't believe it. And even though science has not yet proven it, there are people who do believe it. Mm -hmm. I think largely it is an individual thing, and it's an individual journey.
1: That's the first step to the debate, though, that we're going to discuss here, is the examination of the possibility of consciousness existing outside of your physical self. But what's interesting about this cultural aspect here is that... The common argument or common sense argument is if it was just all in your brain, then it should be very tailored to what your culture is and what your belief system is in that culture. And the data doesn't seem to uphold that, that there are some very generalized experiences across the globe.
0: For instance, the Life Review, here's what they have found. In areas that tend to support religions that actively appeal to the notion of individual conscious and suggest a more one-to-one relationship with a god who has specific expectations of individual followers. In mm-hmm. other words, historic religions; those are the places where you find the life review. So that would be in North America, but also in India.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Now the difference in the life review in India. I'm quoting now Alan Keller here from the Handbook of the Near Death Experience. He says in India, this experience took the form of others reading the record of the near death experiencer's life rather than the form of a panoramic life review that Anglo-Europeans commonly talk about. Uh, you get a storyteller. The belief that a person's record will at death be read is a traditional Hindu belief that most people in India either hold or know. So to a certain degree, yeah. what you believe or what surrounds you in your culture will shade or sort of shape your interpretation of the near-death experience that you have. The type of presentation, let's say, That you get the the, the NDE. I think this transcends
2: the near-death experience. I think this is the framework for every kind of experience you have that is outside the physical world. I think it affects how you interact with a haunting. I think it affects how you interact with a UFO. I think it affects how you interact with possibly even cryptids, although I'm less sure about that. (laughs) Right. And I think that... I'm getting this sense based on the experience of our show and personal experience and all this stuff that it seems like a lot of these things are all being tailored to the recipient. And I'm being very specific there, not just because it's in the recipient's head. It does seem like it's a specially made package for whoever is experiencing it. That does go back a little bit to Atwater's
0: thing. Well, I I, I tend to fall back on co-creation. The person's bringing something to an experience that is... Objectively happening mm. outside of them. But because it is non-material, it is there to be interpreted. And Rob Christofferson, who does the Our Strange Skies podcast, you yes, know, our good buddy, friend.
2: He's in the research core. Yeah.
0: And he's great. And when and we've had conversations about our desire for what are the Chinese abduction experiences or the Japanese or, or, or Middle Eastern? Mm-hmm. And, and are they materially different from what we hear about in the US. Well, it's like when you talk about UFOs specifically, there's a greater acceptance of
2: the belief in them in general in South American countries for example in Mexico and Venezuela and Argentina, in the US it's a whole different animal. You're right, there's a cultural representation or
0: framework for, you know, every region when it comes to all of these things across the board, right? And we talked about this a lot when we were talking about Orfeo Angelucci. Yes. I mean, even with human beings experiencing what they believe are extraterrestrial intelligences, there was an era in time when it appeared that most people having those psychic experiences were having positive experiences. And then a few decades later, as sort of represented by Whitley Strieber, you start having the dark alien abduction experiences, which are analogous to the distressing near-death experiences. So what are the meaning of these two Experiences that seem to be the same kind of thing, but are experienced differently by different people or even in different eras. Again, we haven't scratched the surface. I'm really excited about near-death experience research because it seems to be the one area and far more than alien abduction studies. This is an area that science has engaged with because it feels like it at least exists. They're trying to figure it out. Look, doctors and nurses in hospitals from time immemorial have sat at the bed of dying people, and they've witnessed what people go through, deathbed visions. Sometimes they share in the visions. We've got Raymond Moody, who wrote Life After Life, wrote an entire book called Glimpses of Eternity, yeah. which are about people who are having near-death experiences when someone else is dying. They're sitting with a dying relative. They're fine. They're not Oh, wait, there's a term oxygen. for that one too. You have that what shared a, death shared experience. death experience
2: i hope you kids are taking notes there Mere will death, be a quiz death, shared death
0: <laughs> yes yeah it's a whole song but they're literally just sitting as someone dies and they witness a bright light enter the room sometimes they describe the walls falling away there have been stories where people experience someone else's life review along with them
1: you're getting a contact nde high <laughs> you're getting you're, a you, yes seriously if it's energy if something's sparking sparkiness or there's a medium like in art terms for this maybe you are in that field and you're yeah. just near it and you're getting part of it not the whole thing and it might be tailored to you too yeah. specifically
0: and you're you're seeing things about that person's life in their life review that you did not know and then later are able to go and confirm those events yeah
1: see that's the element that to me takes it out of some of these other arguments against it because Again, there's some common sense things. If it was hallucinations, you'd think they'd be more random, maybe. Oh, yeah. Uh, But there's commonalities. And of course, what, what the skeptical point of view is that the commonalities are because we all share the same brain, regardless of culture and nationality. So the reason that there are any kind of patterns to this or these flukes that happen is because the human brain across all manner of people is
2: exactly the same. So it does the same thing. Speaking of the shared death experience, by the way, there is one NDE story. This isn't really an NDE, it falls more into the category of shared death, I guess, Rich. Which from we, beyond the grave, right? Yeah, yeah. from yeah. beyond the grave. This is an amazing story, and I feel very fortunate that we're being allowed to share it. And you're going to find out why when I read it. This actually comes from one of our listeners, and he and I have interacted a fair amount on Twitter. His name's Javier, and uh, Javier, we're glad to have you. And I I just wanted to thank you for sending us this story, for sharing it with us in the first place, and then also saying that it was okay for us to share it on the show. And you guys are going to understand why when I start reading it. Essentially, I'm going to take this story that he sent in, and I'm just going to read it here. We'll talk a little bit about it after I finish it. I feel like he was doing text-to-speech, so I I changed a few things here and there (laughs) just to clean up. Hmm. But it's pretty much exactly as he sent it in, except for that. So this is uh, from Javier. This happened during a special forces operation in Afghanistan in 2008. I, of course, survived, but a very good friend died in my arms. In January of 2008, we were conducting an operation to capture or kill a high-level leader of the HIG, H-I-G, Pakistani terrorist group, conducting terrorist activities in northern Afghanistan. The operation began in the late hours of the 25th of January which carried over to the next morning. Before we embarked on the mission, we understood the leader was meeting in a compound in one location. But once we were near his location, information was passed along stating he was nearby in another compound closer to the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. The problem was now for us to reposition ourselves in the vicinity of that location to get him. The problem we faced was we were separated by a river, my team being on one side, the HIG commander on the other. So we positioned ourselves overwatching that compound under the cover of darkness in an ambush configuration while we waited for positive identification of our target. Because of the rules of engagement, we could interdict the enemy combatants if they were in possession of weapons, which in the dark we could see by a number of classified methods. There came a point when we were able to positively identify our target along with other enemy combatants leaving the compound with weapons. We opened fire for about 15 to 30 minutes, exchanging gunfire, killing or injuring many of the enemy combatants. We were then ordered to conduct a battle damage assessment to positively identify the enemy losses and assess whether we had injured any civilians. There came a point where we crossed over the river to the location where we had last seen the enemy. There were about six U.S. Special Forces team members, not including myself, and a handful of Afghani Army regular soldiers with us. When we arrived on the scene of the location, the enemy combatants had reinforced themselves with more fighters coming in from the Pakistani side of the border. It being dark, we took them by surprise due to our use of night vision devices, and another firefight broke out. U.S. Special Forces Staff Sergeant Robert J. Miller was leading the formation, followed by myself and the rest of the team. During this firefight, Miller gave his life protecting us. Upon seeing that Robbie fell, myself and another member of the team ran to his aid to try and save his life. Now here is where things got weird for about five minutes. While running to his aid, everything slowed down drastically. A second felt like an hour. I got to his body and saw that he was struggling to breathe. So I opened his top looking for gunshot wounds in order to apply a chest seal but he died before I was able to provide that life-saving aid. It was at this time I heard a voice as clear as day say to me, Javier, everything is going to be all right. I have gone. The voice went on to say, You will be fine. The bullets will hit your plates. Leave me. Get others to help you carry me home. I was then shot twice in the chest, by an enemy combatant that fired his weapon from behind a rock. I didn't feel the impacts of the gunshots, so I picked my rifle, took aim, and fired, killing the enemy combatant. Later on, when talking to another guy who was with me about this, he said he had heard the same voice say the exact same thing, only using his name instead of mine. Anyway, I think this is a really fascinating story. Obviously, this is a story of serious heroism and bravery, and there is a a lot of information on this particular incident that you can find pretty easily. But in terms of the near death or shared death experience, what's fascinating to me is that two other members on the team heard this voice. And not only that, the voice that he heard predicted the future. It told him he was going to be shot. so And
0: that he'd be okay.
2: And that he'd be okay. Told him that. And it also said, look, I'm gone, but it's going to be fine. Get some help. You guys can carry me out of here. And so this, all this information is coming to him after the guy died. So- This is outside the bounds of all of the skeptical arguments against the near-death experience because he's hearing this from a third-party point of view. Yeah,
0: and in a way, it's a classic deathbed sort of psychic experience. You're near someone, they are dying, and you experience something that you can't explain that involves seeing their soul leave their body, hearing their voice after they're dead, there's many, many stories like this. It's
2: fascinating to me. And I mean, obviously this was a heightened time for him and a very traumatic experience. And that's the point at which I guess, you know, we would say, Forrest, we talk about how when things are that intense, the barrier between the the two sides, it's very thin.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of energy and power in emotion and uh, human emotion, especially when it's ramped up like that strange things happen. Even to our senses, normally, like he said, the the time slows down. Race car drivers will tell you that. At those speeds, time slows down. People in combat positions and experiences, time slows down. Like they can see bullet hits uh, happening around them, but in slow motion. That's a physiological response that's pretty common, but In a emergency situation, you know what it reminded me of, at least hearing the voices, was the story we covered last year around this time. Remember of the first responders uh, going to find the overturned car and hearing the mother's voice? Yes. Help me, I believe. Help us. I think it said help us. Help us. us. Yeah. And she had been passed away for at least six or seven hours, they determined. Uh, The little girl's still alive. And it's a similar thing. It's a little bit of a spontaneous crisis apparition or experience. But the continuing and the involvement of it is a little bit more than just a cry for help yes. outside of that. But it's fascinating. Yeah. It's it does make you wonder about if that is possible, if that is real. What is that voice? Where does it come from? Because obviously then it is outside of the brain. It exists somewhere in the ether, and it perfectly frames the debate we're having tonight the brain versus external consciousness. This is Christopher Vigneault. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
2: All right, so in wrapping up these experiences that come across other cultures, one of the ones that I thought was really particularly interesting came again from the NDERF site, the Near Death Experience Research Foundation site, which is NDERF.org. And this particular story is about a guy, he's a Muslim man living in Iran, who had a near-death experience as a result of a car crash. And he was actually clinically dead, according to his medical paperwork, for 32 minutes. And he had a pretty long and detailed experience, which you can read about at the NDERF site, NDERF.org. His particular experience is NDE16083. They have a whole identification system there, but we'll have a link to it too. He's listed as Muhammad Z. So this story actually was originally sent in to the website in Farsi and translated to English by someone named Amir. And I'm just going to read the sum up of one of these sections here for you guys. And this is coming back to the life review thing that we've talked about before. One example of my life review was when I was a little kid. We were traveling by car and stopped somewhere along the way. There was a river not far from the road, and I was asked to go and bring some water in a bucket from that river. I went to fill up the bucket, but on my way back, I felt that the bucket was too heavy for me. I decided to empty some of the water to make the bucket lighter. Instead of emptying the water right there, I noticed a tree that was alone by itself in a dry patch of land. I took the effort to go out of my way to that tree and emptied some of the water at the tree base. I even waited there a few seconds to make sure the water soaked into the soil and was absorbed. In my life review... I received such an applaud and joy for this simple act that it is unbelievable. It was like all the spirits in the universe were filled with joy from this simple act and were telling me, we are proud of you. That seemed to be one of the best things I had ever done in my life. This was strange to me because I didn't think this little act was a big deal and thought I had done much more important and bigger things. However, it was shown to me, that what I had done was extremely valuable because I had done it purely from the heart with absolutely no expectation for my own gain. That's one aspect of his story. His whole account is really amazing. Like I said, we've got a link to it. you got to read it. And here's another, before we stop to talk about this for a second, here's another part of it that I thought was really interesting. I got the understanding that everybody who dies has a guide, But some humans are so attached to their physical and material world that they still worry about their money, possessions, or power even after death. They don't notice their guide and might not even notice that they are dead. Their soul can stay earthbound for a long time after their death. For example, my guide showed me a man who apparently used to be in a position of authority and power back on the earth. After this man's death, he still went to the office he used to work in, trying to sit at the same chair and signed documents. He was oblivious to the fact that his signature does not leave any marks and he has no power and effect in the physical world. He kept going to that office, trying to sign things, and act as he was still working there, not realizing that he is dead. I got this understanding that any strong earthbound attachment can keep our souls from soaring. So, well, that explains a lot of ghosts. It does, right. doesn't I mean, it? Right there in a, a couple sentences. Well, you know,
0: look, I go to work every day. I have no effect on anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. People don't know why I'm there. I don't know why I'm there. If you nothing stopped, changes. right. Yeah. yeah.
2: I'm going to be sitting right here where I'm sitting right now, <laughs> no. trying to do a, a ghost yeah. cast. Rich has right. written a
1: whole screenplays to no effect. It is oh, well, blank pages. Story of my life. Yeah, right. But that goes to Bruce Grayson's point that, quote, a surrender to the process of dying seem to permit deeper, effective, and transcendent aspects of NDEs. And this idea of non-clinging, don't cling to the crap going on here because this is all ephemeral, it goes away. There's nothing, you can't take anything with you. And we hear ghost stories of people that go seeming to do the same things that they did in life. Not always terrible, it's just that they're comfortable with them. As the bartender, uh, she wipes down the tables at the one British pub that she was caught right. on security camera, just right. people like... You can stop wiping the tables. Someone else will do that now. There's bigger and better things
2: awaiting you. But again, people get wrapped up in their routine here and the importance of that. So that's why yeah. I think it's good to change things up every now and then, just so you, didn't, yeah. you don't get caught. The other part of that guy's message, and again, this is a practicing Muslim from Iran, but the part of this experience that is universal is just that, you know what, here's the message, whether you're agnostic or whatever. You know what was good? When you watered that poor little tree. That little tree, no one knew you did it. You weren't going to get anything back from the tree. You just did something good. Right. And you did something good for a living thing.
1: That story is, he was wondering, it's like, well, that doesn't seem like a whole big deal, but that experience is symbolic. Yes. And an allegory of a bigger, better thing. It's like, it may not be the tree, but it's helping things along, taking a little effort outside of your selfish needs to help something else. And that's the point. That's the golden rule. And as we heard that story before, I believe, to get that ticket to heaven or the afterlife, all you need is the golden rule. So now we've come down to what is this all about, this phenomenon? Is it even a phenomenon, the near-death experience? Is it just, is it an experience, but happening inside the experiencer's head? Or is it something much more cosmic. And even beyond that, is it something that's way beyond even the cosmic aspect of this? Is this infinite? And to solve that debate, you have to look at the first step here and basically to determine the validity of the NDE and therefore the possibility of an afterlife, because that's the big question here. This all rests on the possibility that consciousness could exist outside of our physical self, our alive, wad of gray matter, chunk of brain, because that's one side of the argument. That's all it is. It's in that chunk of gray matter. The other argument is, the first step is that, no, that's not where we really are, the big we, somewhere outside of that. And as Professor Berkson says, you know, if that could be proven, that people are having conscious experiences when their bodies and brains are physiologically incapable of having experiences, it would establish that consciousness is not entirely dependent on the brain. So that's the crux of the argument here. And so in outlining this skeptical researcher's argument, what they would call the mind, it's an emergent property or activity of the brain. So things like seeing and hearing, you know, when we're not, our brains aren't functioning, that would show that consciousness can exist independently of the brain. That's the NDE, is that you're seeing, you're hearing things, you're experiencing things. When your brain isn't supposed to be, that makes it possible that consciousness exists outside of the brain. So that's where we are in the argument. And there's there are some uh, notable skeptical researchers, and they would argue that it's basically just a fully naturalistic process. It can be all explained, this phenomenon, and it's reduced basically to biological and chemical processes. So this is just what happens in the dying brain. And one of the most notable NDE skeptics is British psychologist Susan Blackmore. There's a great quote from her, I think, because again, I love the tone of some of these quotes we're going to hear. Quote, NDE's are products of a brain and the universe of which it is a part, for there is nothing else. So she's pretty sure of herself.
0: I disagree. (laughs) Well,
2: that's the. Explain yourself, sir. I just want to quickly, while I'm pouring you guys some more eggnog here.
0: Yeah, I Mm. just wanted
2: to quickly point out that the snow has turned to sleet. You can hear it. (laughs) On the roof.
0: It's a Christmas miracle it's in cool. Southern California yeah, that really water's coming cool. out of the sky. <laughs> Rich, I don't know if you're going to be able to yeah. drive home. What, because of the booze or the rain? Or both? <laughs>
2: a little, maybe both. It's eggnog, Rich. It's yeah. eggnog, right.
0: Eggnog with booze in
1: it. <laughs> Brandy and real eggs. Anyway, the argument, though, is that there's a lot of scientists who would say that it's a dying brain process, releasing endorphins, the natural painkillers that our bodies do when we're under duress. You know, It's producing the state of well-being, and that's all it is. You're getting a lovely message from inside your own brain playing a tape.
0: Well, these are interesting theories and theories that should be heard. But I think even if Susan Blackmore is honest with herself, she knows Mm -hmm. that even the best of these theories don't begin to explain even the majority of near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is... Uh, experiencing a physically dying brain when they have a near-death experience.
1: Yeah, to our point with a lot of this stuff, and again, our favorite hot-button issues or, or points or bullet points, taking one explanation or strange and interesting phenomenon to explain the entire phenomenon, like uh, infrasound, the electrical stimulation of the temporal parietal junction to produce a gray blob out of the corner of your eye or there's or the sense of there being some other presence That might be you. We talked about that in the Shadow People episode. Something above you, behind you, underneath you, depending on where they stimulate that. That's one small thing. And certainly that's maybe 1.0001% of all the stories we've heard. Yeah. Anybody reporting, like, I felt there was a a mass or myself, something behind me. But there's no context to that. All these stories have a story context. And yes, they're anecdotal. But it's like with uh, Susan Blackmore arguing that, It's because the brain is deprived of oxygen, and so you have an abnormal firing of neurons occurring in the areas of the brain responsible for vision, and that's where you get the bright white light, surrounded by darkness and the tunnel effect. So that's her explanation. It's like, it's a lack of oxygen. Here's an interesting study. Kevin Nelson, who's a neurologist, and he wrote the book, A Spiritual Doorway in the Brain, A Neurologist's Search for the God Experience. Basically, his findings are that the tunnel effect is caused by, quote, constriction of the visual fields due to compromised blood pressure in the eyes, and the bright light represents a flow of visual excitation from the stem through visual relay stations to the visual cortex. So in other words, uh, basically the decreased blood flow to the eyes is reducing that field of vision, creating a darkness tunnel effect, coming down to a bright point and that is what you're seeing when you get the tunnel effect. That's only one part, though, of the NDE.
0: Well, not only that, but people in India don't have the tunnel experience. <laughs> right. And, and what's fun about this is that when Susan Blackmore herself was interviewing these people, she was trying to find cases of the tunnel sensation in Indian NDEs. But on closer inspection, all three respondents she found who claimed the tunnel experience actually didn't have a tunnel experience. They had a sensation of darkness. And one respondent agreed that her experience of darkness was tunnel-like only after accepting a leading suggestion from Blackmore. Oh. Blackmore was doing the best she could to frame her questions in a leading way to support her belief system. Now, this is the accusation they have leveled at the people who hypnotize the alien abductees it's the same thing we we all have our own confirmation bias look the thing is we're questioning this people are having experiences you and you and i are trying to figure out what these experiences are we're not claiming to know what they are but these scientists they know what it is it's been explained <laughs> well, they're moving on yeah they yeah. figured it out it's dying brain on to the next, right? but based on no more, in fact, a lot less information and a lot less exploration in many cases, because they're not talking to the people who have the experiences. They're saying, when a brain dies, here's probably what's happening in that brain. Yeah, But they don't know what's happening in that brain. It's like when true believers use the phrase quantum, and they use quantum as their catch-all. They'll say, well, according to quantum physics, there's a lot of dimensions and that's where heaven is. Right. The hard scientists, it drives them nuts. Mm-hmm. It's like all these hooey gooey woo-woo people just grab the term quantum physics and it's like a suitcase into which they pack all of their beliefs. I get the feeling he might be a little bit talking about us because we say quantum all the time. Oh
2: well, but no, you, I mean, it, you more than me, I think. Yeah. Okay, I'm no, just no, making meant, uh... sure <laughs> I can't tell if you're insulting us, Rich. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's I
0: I didn't want you to catch on until I left the building. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> I'm probably using the term incorrectly, so it doesn't apply to <laughs> So that's uh, but, uh, but but I see what you're you, saying, yeah.
0: You were telling me about some rat experiment. Thing yeah. Here, uh, dying well, rats.
1: yeah, again, there's different facets that skeptical researchers will point to as their go-to explanations here. And frankly, they make sense to me. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're kind of individualized. So part of it is the life review. Now, what's interesting with the rats is that rats in a state of duress
2: or having their heart stopped, we don't know what kind of a review they're having. By the way, we do not condone rat experiments. These experiments have already happened. Please do not email us about the rats. We have not heard any Uh, rats. I'm not sure they died either. I mean, yeah, you don't want to... Well, they weren't having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
0: right. This is the one where, as they were dying, their brain activity spiked. Yeah,
1: so that... Experiment was done at the University of Michigan in 2013. And that is something that materialists, people who will say that's all all in your head, will point to as proof that uh, that will explain their outcome of this near death experience, except, of course, it's in rats. So this experiment was covered by journalist Gideon Litchfield, who did a lot of extensive writing, I think, on kind of the skeptical side of it. We're basically taking a look at these experiments. And uh, what he found that the researchers did was, quote, took anesthetized rats and stopped their hearts. Within 30 seconds, the rats EEG brain signals flatlined, but first they spiked with an intensity that suggested that different parts of the brain were communicating with one another, even more actively than when the rats were awake. So in effect, you know what this means is that the brain goes into this heightened state of hyperactivity, kind of a final spasm when it's denied oxygen. And what happens is that this heightened brain activity, which is higher than when they were awake normally, is producing some kind of NDE experience for these rats. And it's triggering a life review. That life review is somehow connected to the human experience of that heightened brain activity that humans experience. And that basically, that's part of the brain just playing the tape, as I say. It's it's like, press the play button on the file because we're about to go down... And that's what every brain does well, animal a and human,
0: things. you know, why would a brain go through a life review when it's dying? The skeptical review is
1: that it's part of the endorphin process to distract you or comfort you in some way. I believe that that's, their but, 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 but
0: it's so odd again, it's a weird place to land. In other words, yeah. they're taking the suitcase of increased brain activity and they're packing the NDE into that with no evidence. There's no logical reason. There's no biological reason. There's no evolutionary reason why you would. And they've, well, maybe your brain is searching for an experience that was just like this. Was that what your brain does? Right. Certainly no proof of that. But as long as you can come up with something and jam it in there, (laughs) then you can move on to the next.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This
0: spiked brain activity, that's really interesting that they're saying this this burst of activity is where the NDE exists. But what they're doing is ignoring the fact that for most people, There is no brain activity Mm -hmm. at all when the near-death experience takes place. Then you have Oliver Sacks in a way that I think is actually, this one actually makes some sense. Mm -hmm. His theory apparently was, well, you don't know when the near-death experience is taking place. Maybe it's taking place while the brain is flatlined, or maybe it's taking place in the split second before the brain flatlines
2: Exactly. And, and, and I
0: actually think that is a legitimate argument. Right. We don't know exactly when, because- Well, we're getting back to that whole debate that about
2: the moment of death. It's like, when well, is the moment of right. death? When it happens, it might be a way that we can't measure.
0: Right. But let me ask you, if you have ever done this? You're sitting with your family, watching TV, you're getting a little bit drowsy, you fall asleep. Yeah. Then you wake up and you feel like you've been asleep for a long time. And you had a very quick, like in the moment you were out- you sort of had a dream or what felt like a dream that felt like it went on for a long time. But when you wake up, you realize, wait a second, we're still in the same scene. I mm-hmm. couldn't have been asleep for more than maybe 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. But you sort of feel like in my dream, I kind of feel like I was out longer. Have you right. had that experience? Of course, yeah.
1: It's hard to gauge time. Yeah. Uh, but that is the debate between uh, the argument and the counter argument here between uh, Dr. Eben Alexander, who wrote the book, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife and the famous British neurologist Dr. Oliver Sacks and that
0: Dr. Alexander had his own near-death experience. Even Alexander had been in a coma for seven days, and he reported that he had passed through a bright light to a beautiful meadow, and he believed that to be heaven, and he met God, and he sort of explains this as a seven-day journey, but Oliver Sacks says, well, it might have been a seven-second journey.
1: Yeah, Because that's Alexander's point, is that his cerebral cortex was completely shut down during the coma, and he had this long journey from point A to point B for the whole time, and Dr. Sachs would saying, like, well, maybe it's in that split second between those states. And right. that seemed like seven days, but it was only
0: seven seconds, maybe. All these skeptics hate Dr. Eben Alexander the most, because <laughs> yeah. he titled his book Proof of Heaven. Right. And the minute you <laughs> right. use that word, it is a dog whistle to these guys. They're just yeah. like, heaven! Dah! If he had titled his book something else and hadn't used the words heaven, right. God, he probably would have ducked a lot of this shit that got thrown at him. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's the part of it, though, that he had the classic experience where everything's beautiful. He believes he was in the presence of God. Like, How hey, dare you, you know, say that?
0: Look, you know what? That's the thing. Is Just if it, say white uh, light and it felt good and move on.
1: <laughs> if that's what Keep he, he thinks, Keep it secular. Though, it's
0: Christmas. Give me that to, eggnog.
1: He has to say it, though. You know what I'm saying? It's like you get to the... I think if you had that experience, and when people do, and I don't know what his religious beliefs were before that, but... I find it interesting when uh, atheists have that similar experience. And uh, it's everywhere, though, with the paranormal, because any part of that is a show of something beyond our materialist world. And that's right. what we're talking about here. There, here's In the other cutoff. Words, point.
0: If, if, if these experiences were 100% created inside the individual based on their prior beliefs, then right. all Christians would have a particular NDE and all atheists would have no NDEs. What suggests that there is an exterior element to this is that people bring certain things to it, but then there are a lot of things that surprise them. Right, right. And those are the things that are possibly coming from the outside, that are directly opposed to their previous beliefs.
1: If you could prove that consciousness can exist outside of the body, it doesn't necessarily prove that there is an afterlife
0: or heaven no. It or what that's possible. even like. Yeah. And perhaps people, even after they die, co-create their afterlife experience. Well, yeah, and and why wouldn't they? Because you co-create
2: your life experience. But these people are coming back from these NDE experiences, and they're saying they come back with this a strong spiritual belief and a belief in God, but there's another component to it. Well, they're not necessarily more religious. They're spiritual, as we mentioned
1: earlier in the show here. But it doesn't necessarily make you not religious. It's kind of like if you kind of did that a little bit before, went to church and did all the things. Uh, you know, that's things. The meme. <laughs> you went through, well, maybe, maybe you went through the motions. Maybe you weren't really that emotionally invested. You just did it ex- because everybody, you know, I go to church, that's what our family does. But now you take it more seriously. Maybe you don't go any more often. It's just that you're more into it, you know, more engaged because you see it with fresh eyes. And if you didn't buy into that before, any kind of denomination you came out of it, again, more spiritually open because you've seen a sight that you can't explain. I'm Danielle Lyons from Whidbey Island, Washington. And when I'm not trying to part the veil between worlds, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
2: So now I have another question. This is a question for you Rich and it's something not just specifically you both of you guys but mm. like I guess that is only just now occurring to me. Let's say that this is all in your mind. And there's nothing to it when we die we're worm food or whatever. Then what again from an evolutionary reason or any other reason would be the reason for coming back and feeling that way, feeling more devoted to God and spiritual or devoted to yeah. whatever higher being you believe in? What would be the reason for that?
1: I don't think you could provide a reason that it's an improvement over... Take yourself as an organism, like any other sea creature that uh, behaves and adapts and evolves to further itself, because that's the aim of every organism on Earth, to keep on living and generations afterwards in a most efficient way. And okay, so let's say it's a comforting aspect of the quote-unquote dying brain let's run the tape let's flood the brain with endorphins it's a painkiller it's a pleasant experience not for everybody some people have the negative uh, you got the stale out-of-date endorphins and you had the bad experience but for most people it's good and maybe it's just comforting and you come back and then maybe you know it's just like you live a little bit better you know what i'm saying so in society and in, or, to
2: the individual what if the evolutionary reason is that all the microorganisms and the smaller components of life that make up your body are just trying to self-preserve. Is this and your so,
1: metachlorians? <laughs> well, no, it's just the they're argument.
2: they're just kind of figuring out it's like uh well this thing's almost done. Can we get it to keep hanging on cuz this is the good life. But if it's gonna go, yeah, we're gonna have to jump ship here. And we're going to have to go be different forms of bacterias and whatever. We're going to go down yeah. into the earth. Or, so maybe they're trying to control their journey collectively. I and see what you're saying. There's right. some yeah. kind of, I don't
0: know. You well, know that, that's that's the what par- we do. That, we speculate. The, right. That's the, Move the eggnog away from Scott. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I put a lot of DMT in it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> if I not. Ketamine is another psychoactive drug that apparently produces... Uh, And some people uh, being in a beautiful setting, meeting somebody who seems to appear to be God, the typical NDE. However, as the case studies will show, that's not the common experience. And some people have what they say is a really bad trip, and uh, it's frightening and and horrible. They don't even have an NDE experience. It was just a really bad long trip, and it's not good for you. So, Kids, do not go playing with this stuff. Because, you know, the wrong combination is that you will have the irreversible experience.
0: Well, let me ask you a question, Forrest. Yes, sir. If scientists and skeptics could design an experiment to test some of this stuff, what if they decided to do something where they were like, okay, even though this is totally unethical, let's take a human (laughs) being and let's anesthetize them. Let's uh, black out their eyes and fill their ears with a loud clicking noise so they can't take in any sensory information Then let's drain the blood out of their brain. Exsanguinate, I believe, is the word. Uh There you go. Let's do all those things so we're absolutely sure they're not overhearing anything and their brain is absolutely shut down. What if we could do this horribly unethical experience, and then that person had a near-death experience, that would be a way for us to actually know that these are legitimate experiences. And also, by the way, lower their body temperature to 60 degrees. That's even better. Yeah. I mean, if a skeptic could design an experiment, wouldn't that be a good one? Well, Rich and Scott... It's been done. What? Yes. Thank God I was sitting down. Not uh, not for that purpose.
1: The experience of the NDE, you could say, was a side effect under these very interesting conditions, which sound nearly uh, as if they were purposely done to control the NDE experience. For an experiment, but it was not. It was because of a brain aneurysm, wasn't it?
0: Wait, so what are you saying? This actually happened? It did.
2: Uh, What? Pam Reynolds had a brain aneurysm that needed to be operated on. And so in order to operate on her under these very specific conditions, it was a pioneering surgery and one of the first times it had ever been done. They were going to exsanguinate her, remove the blood from her body, because the aneurysm is like a balloon of blood, in this case, in her brain, that if it exploded, it could kill her. And so what they wanted to do was operate on it to remove it so that she could safely live. So in order to do that, they reduced her body temperature, I believe, to 60 degrees. They plugged her ears, and then there was devices in there that were clicking, making a loud click that they could track. Yeah, you could see it on the EEG. The EEG, yes. And they stopped her heart. Her breathing stopped. Her brain waves were flattened. And the blood was drained from her head, specifically.
0: Shut up. This could not be. This never happened. (laughs) You guys guys are lying. What? Yeah. Well, it's a
2: famous
1: case here.
0: But if a person was in that physical state, there's no way any of these... Previously given skeptical arguments for the near near death experience uh, hold up. Well, they, they simply couldn't, could they? <laughs> well, that's
2: a good question. I mean, here's the thing that happened with her. She did have a near death experience. So I'm going to read a little section here from Doctor Sabum's book, Light and Death. This is from location 489 in the Kindle edition. Standard EEG electrodes were taped to her head and would record cerebral. Cortical brain activity. The auditory nerve center located in the brainstem would be tested repeatedly using 100 decibel clicks emitted from small molded speakers inserted into her ears. In response to these clicks, sharp spikes on the electrogram would assure the surgical team that the brainstem was intact. Four separate sites were prepped for surgery, the right side of Pam's head for the craniotomy, the chest for possible open heart surgery, and both groins for femoral artery and vein access for cardiopulmonary bypass. Adhesive defibrillator pads were stuck to her chest in case her heart needed to be shocked back to life. So they've got her pretty well secured. And this is Pam's particular experience. And this is from location 518 in the Kindle edition of Dr. Sabham's book, Light and Death. The next thing I recall was the sound. It was a natural D as in the note D. As I listened to the sound, I felt it was pulling me out of the top of my head. The further out of my body I got, the more clear the tone became. I had the impression it was like a road, a frequency that you go on. I remember seeing several things in the operating room when I was looking down. It was the most aware that I think I have ever been in my entire life. I was metaphorically sitting on Dr. Spetzler's shoulder. It was not like normal vision. It was brighter and more focused and clearer than normal vision. There was so much in the operating room that I did not recognize, and so many people... I thought the way they had my head shaved was very peculiar. I expected them to take all of the hair, but they did not. The saw thing that I hated the sound of looked like an electric toothbrush and it had a dent in it. A groove at the top where the saw appeared to go into the handle, but it didn't, and the saw had interchangeable blades too, but these blades were in what looked like a socket wrench case. I heard the saw crank up. I didn't see them use it on my head, but I think I heard it being used on something. It was humming at a relatively high pitch, and then all of the sudden, it went err like that. She goes on to point out how she heard someone say something about her veins and arteries being very small. She said she believed that was a female voice, and she thought that it was Dr. Murray. There were a lot of doctors there, but she wasn't sure. So then they successfully operated on the aneurysm. Later in the surgery, at 11.25 a.m., Pam was subjected to one of the most daring and remarkable surgical maneuvers ever performed in an operating room. The head of the operating table was tilted up, the cardiopulmonary bypass machine was turned off, and the blood was drained from her body, like oil from a car. Sometime during this period, her near-death experience progressed. There was a sensation, like being pulled, but not against your will. I was going on my own accord, because I wanted to go. I have different metaphors to try to explain this. It was like the Wizard of Oz, being taken up in a tornado vortex, only you're not spinning around, like you've got vertigo. You're very focused, and you have a place to go. The feeling was like going up in an elevator real fast, and there was a sensation, but it wasn't a bodily, physical sensation. It was like a tunnel, but it wasn't a tunnel. At some point, very early in the tunnel vortex, I became aware of my grandmother calling me, but I didn't hear her call me with my ears. It was a clearer hearing than with my ears. I trust that sense more than I trust my own ears. The feeling was that she wanted me to come to her, So I continued with no fear down the shaft. It's a dark shaft that I went through, and at the very end there was this very little tiny pinpoint of light that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I noticed that as I began to discern different figures in the light, and they were all covered with light, they were light. And had light permeating all around them. They began to form shapes I could recognize and understand. I could see that one of them was my grandmother. I don't know if it was reality or projection, but I would know my grandmother, the sound of her, anytime, anywhere. I recognized a lot of people. My uncle Jean was there. So was my great-great aunt Maggie, who was really a cousin. They were specifically taking care of me, looking after me. They would not permit me to go further. It was communicated to me, that's the best way I know how to say it, because they didn't speak like I'm speaking, that if I went all the way into the light, something would happen to me physically. They would be unable to put this me back into the body me. Like I had gone too far and they couldn't reconnect. So they wouldn't let me go anywhere or do anything. I wanted to go into the light, but I also wanted to come back. I had children to be reared. It was like watching a movie on fast forward on your VCR. You get the general idea, but the individual freeze frames are not slow enough to get detail. There you go. There's much more to this story, but that's the extent of her experience. And she did live. And she was clinically dead. Yeah. And by the way, when she came out of it in the surgery room, they were playing Hotel California. And the first line she heard was, (laughs) you can check out anytime you like, (laughs) but you can never leave. She Mm. said she later told Dr. Brown that was incredibly insensitive. Mm. And he told me that I needed to sleep more. Right. (laughs) Right. So that was in 1991. Yes. That operation happened. Unbelievable. I mean, just in all those conditions, she was sensory deprived. At that point. Right. But all the information that she had was true. I mean, the fact that there was the dent and the saw, she wouldn't have seen the saw. The saw came in after no, she was eye, out exactly. and left before she woke up. Right. So her eyes are taped shut. Yes. She can't see.
1: That's why, incidentally, it is a great NDE type of experience. There is a skeptical argument made by that journalist.
0: enough of this.
1: (laughs) Because he also talks about Maria. Which journalist? Uh, Gordon Litchfield. He says, none of Reynolds' reported veridical perceptions happened when her EEG recorded a flat line. So he's refuting that. They all took place before or after when she was under anesthetic, but very much alive. So he's attributing that possibly to anesthesia awareness.
2: Can I just say big, fat, hairy deal? Like, I don't know where you're at with that, Rich, but for me, it's like that moment of death, whether you were flatlined or not, this experience is what it is. If your brain is still working, it doesn't um,
0: nullify it for me. Blindfold someone, block their ears, and then put them on anesthesia and then have them tell you what's happening in the room.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whether they're
0: dead or not. Right. They can be wide awake. See, that's a super valid point. And I think
2: the other thing that's interesting about this is it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the moment of death. And this is what's fascinating to me. I want to read this paragraph. This is uh, just a little bit later in uh, Dr. Sabum's book. This is location uh, 659 in the Kindle edition. Basically, he's just finishing up here saying how everyone could certify that she was clinically dead for a good deal of the operation. But to your point, Forrest, and to that journalist's point Mm -hmm. about what is that moment of death and what does death even mean? And again, this harkens back to something we were saying earlier. With this information, can we now scientifically assert that Pam was either dead or alive during her near-death experience? Unfortunately, no. Even if all medical tests certify her death, we would still have to wait to see if life was restored. Since she did live, then by definition, she was never dead. Doctors can save people from death and rescue some who are close to death, but they cannot raise people from the dead. Conversely, if Pam had died, the tests indicating death would have been confirmed. So the point here, and this is something that I got from Dr. Sabram's book, it was a point that he made very well. It's like, what is death? If you're dead, you can be dead for five weeks, and they bring you back. Were you ever really dead? Well, five weeks is a long time. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, you know, mm. the doctors can't raise people from the dead. But the point is that if you're dead for an hour, you know, we took all the blood out of your body, but then we brought you back, then you were never really dead because now you're back. Because dead has this finality to it. Or is, as Rich said earlier, it was the name of my high school band, permanently dead. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently well, you can uh, be temporarily dead, but, except but, that's yes. not death.
0: But if you embrace the spiritualist viewpoint, You're never dead. Yeah. You're either in your body or you're not in your body, but you're still you. And that brings us to a book by Jeffrey A. Marks called The Afterlife Interviews. So now this is kind of cool because you got to look at it and go, all right, well, all these people who claim to have near death experiences came back. They're alive. And if they're alive now, then they were alive then, at least alive enough to come back. But what about the people who actually die? Who talks to them? Well, mediums talk to them. Now, I know I'm solving one mystery by introducing a second mystery, but just for fun, let's take a look at this. Because when we recorded part one, I went home and I remembered oh, wait, there's some cool life review stories, but they're actually in a book called The Afterlife Interviews. And what this book is, this medium, who meets with people and puts them in touch with their dead grandmother or whatever, people would come up and say, oh, you're a medium, so you talk to spirits. Well, what do they say life is like on the other side? And he realized he had no good answers because that's never what they talked about. They only spent all of their time talking about, okay, you are so-and-so's grandmother. Here's how we're proving that you're so-and-so's grandmother. Here's what she remembers about being alive. Here's how she died. Not to derail you, but just quickly, it kind of goes back to that bigger
2: picture thing, which is something that Forrest pitched about the EVP from the Sally House again, was this zip file idea. I can't get away from that. Just like that all the data is there. It's kind of like the Bible code. Did you ever read the Bible code, that book? Um, Oh, no,
0: but I'm familiar with it. Oh, right, where you can
2: find the information. It's like all the information is there. It's really about how you come at it. It's the Yes, you have to ask the right question. You have to ask the right question. So it's interesting because they're having these experiences and everybody's just like, well, is aunt Judy there? What is she? No, it's not aunt Judy. What does she have a gray, (laughs) a shock of gray hair?
0: What's it like to be dead? Why is no one asking that? That's what this guy finally did. So let's, yeah, he decided he, he wrote up a list of, I think 52 questions and he would ask permission from the sitter before, 552. 52? Well, that's as many as he came up with. Oh, okay. And so it's, it's like a number of a deck of cards. Yeah. I, I, it's, something it's, yeah. <laughs> I know, it sounds significant. I'm not sure <laughs> that it is. But in cases where he got a very strong connection to a spirit, he would say, when you're done talking to your grandma, can I talk to her? Because I've got some questions. And then he would interview the dead person, which is fascinating. I love it. It's, so, it could be a new uh, late night show. Totally. So- He would ask, okay, so what happens at the moment of death and right afterwards? And you know the answers he got? Well, I went through a tunnel, and then I had a life review. And these are people who didn't come back from the dead. He's just talking to spirits of people who are in the ground. They've been cremated. Here's what these spirits say. This one person responded. What they did in my life review, they made it small in terms of size and made me larger than what I was viewing So I could take all of it in, and yet it didn't overwhelm me. It was the most loving and caring thing I had seen and ever had done. Even though the problems in my life were still there and being shown to me, they created the imagery in such a way that they kept saying, You're bigger than this. You're bigger than this. Can you see that you're bigger than this? They didn't dismiss the conditions, they didn't dismiss the problems, but they wanted to keep me, and now the medium is talking. The medium says he didn't have a lot of control over his emotions because the whole point of keeping him larger was because they understood he could get emotionally caught up in what he was viewing and it would just make him spiral down into despair, looking at bad events from his life. And they didn't want that to happen. They wanted to keep him above that, so they created this special perspective for him.
2: That we're getting back to looking of a down on review. yourself. Yeah.
0: yeah, or looking down on yourself. Someone else describes it very directly. This person says, as soon as I got out of the tunnel, the life review thing started. It was all of a sudden, boom, because the memories are fresh. They got right into it. And so, again, paraphrasing from this book, many of these dead people said, I died. I left the body out of body experience. Mm-hmm. I was surrounded by light. I traveled to that light through a tunnel. Once I arrived there, I saw dead people, relatives of mine. I saw spirit figures, and I was given a life review. These are people who didn't come back from the dead. These are spirits that this medium is talking to. In a weird way, it's confirmation of the near-death experience. It's not just something experienced because of something the physical body is going through, some sort of crisis, lack of oxygen. This is the beginning of what happens next. If you believe that this guy is talking yeah. to dead people. Well, or, by the way, there's volume one and volume two. These are really fun, interesting. No, I can't wait to I read mean, them. It's so fun. Yeah. You got to yeah. check it
2: out. In a lot of ways, that setup for that book is part of the reason I wanted to start our show. I felt like a lot of times when people approach the paranormal, they didn't ask the questions that I wanted to people to be
0: asking right it's the same thing i love it yeah like he I, does I no he out. asks everything he's yeah. like do you perceive- what's it like there <laughs> yeah. what's it like there do you perceive a progression of time or do you live in an eternal now oh, he, he asked that hey look do you get to eat the food you used to like do you get to have sex right all those like like right completely stupid human questions and they get answered. Wow. That's it's fascinating.
1: Awesome. From a variety of entities or just one good a variety. One. Of,
0: there's like 18 different sitters and spirits. Some of them are from non-Western religions and non-Western cultures. And they come through. And so, I mean, again, check out the book. You can find it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's well worth a weekend. Interesting. I love it.
1: We said this, uh, or I did, I guess, about the Sally house is that we go there and you have a limited physical experience. Maybe you get no one was really scratched. We got some marks on some of our peeps there, but they faded quickly. That experience mostly was internal for Scott and a little bit of uh, strange feelings for some of us, but. If you want to know the answers of like, who's doing this? What's going on? Then you have to look to mediumship. And there's a lot of people who don't believe in that kind of stuff. It's intangible. I would say that they won't believe in it until they have somebody tell them something about themselves that totally freaks them out. And I've seen that happen to people. You have somebody who's really good. They say like, hey, this happened to you. You're like... Uh, how do you know that? And because it it, it totally puts them off their noodle, because how is that possible? It's impossible. How would you know that? So...
0: And the holy grail that skeptics and scientists are looking for is the unbreakable, veridical experience, where someone who is flatlining in one room is able to accurately describe what's happening somewhere else, and this gets completely confirmed. The other part of the skeptical argument is that these experiences or certain elements
1: of them can be reproduced by different physical aspects. So fighter pilots who undergo tremendous G-force, Dr. James Winnery in 1978, he did a study with fighter pilots who underwent centrifugal force training to see how many Gs they could stand before you black out. They have some similar characteristics in their experience with NDEs. They would report things of uh, beautiful dreams I guess, dreamlets, things happening in and out. They would see a tunnel with a bright light. They would feel like they were leaving their bodies. Not all of them, some of them. A sense of euphoria. And here's what I thought was interesting. Images of family members and friends. But I couldn't find, at least in this anecdote here, if it was deceased family members telling you things, or if it was living friends and family because I think it makes a difference. It's like with Pam Reynolds, her uncle guiding her back. It's not your time. That's a really good point.
2: With the NDEs, everybody's dead. Wait, Not, so it,
0: mostly. Mostly. Some yeah. people having a near-death experience do see people who are currently alive.
2: Okay, okay. Well, then that just squashes everything I was just going to say.
0: No, but that's...
2: Thanks,
0: Rich. You're welcome. That is,
1: that is in line just with what I'm saying, trying to play though. fair. <laughs> that's kind of my point here. Another case, uh, the angular gyrus argument, and that is a part of the brain that is believed to uh, have some effect on our ability to sense movement and spatial orientation, and when that is stimulated by electricity, very small amounts, like the God Helmet, we'll talk about that in a second, the sensation that you are looking down on yourself, that out-of-body experience happens. And it's another great quote I like here. (laughs) Skeptic Michael Shermer said, quote, it's another blow against those who believe that the mind and spirit are somehow separate from the
0: brain. In reality, all experience is derived from the brain. Unquote. I mean, yeah. L- look at that statement for a second. Let- let's pull it apart. Here's his statement. The second sentence in reality, all experience is derived from the brain. Yeah. Well, in a way, that's true. It's experienced your perception with of the, experience. Well, yeah, it's experienced with the brain. Right. So, yeah. But what he, of course, is saying is that it's created within the brain. And the first sentence, it's another blow against those who believe that the mind and spirit are somehow separate from the brain, that people who believe differently than he does, this is a battle. Science is engaged in a battle Mm -hmm. where smart, rational people like Michael Shermer must deliver blows against people (laughs) who question the nature of existence. Right, right. It's a war going on. Right. Now, on the one hand, I can understand that, I'm sure it's very frustrating to talk to people who don't understand the scientific method Mm -hmm. or who believe things that are patently false. I'm right here, I can hear you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of patently false.
0: (laughs) But I don't see a lot of near-death experience researchers saying, well, it's another blow to materialists when you can (laughs) say that it's like, this is not a battle. In a perfect world, the Michael Shermers and the Susan Blackmores would stand back and say, you know, there are mysteries, And we don't have really, really good explanations for them. And these weren't owls. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I mean, (laughs) by
0: the way. Hi, Blake. These theories that theoretically explain near-death experiences are not all-encompassing. They're not particularly strong. Yeah. And they don't take into account the human experience.
2: No, they're weaker than the experience itself. And again, I think what we were trying to say earlier, all three of us in different ways, none of them effective, was that (laughs) when it comes to this skeptical argument against this or anything else that we talk about on Astonishing Legends, it's often, it seems to be the skeptics approach to say, well, I've definitively concluded that this one particular aspect of this is attributed to X. Therefore, all of it is bunk. It's largely a
0: rhetorical argument that the underlying message is science has the means to explain things. And here's yet another fly we're swatting out of the air with the mighty fly swatter of science. And, you know, you don't need to make that argument to prove that the scientific method is useful and can explain a lot of the human experience. But I think we have to acknowledge that it doesn't explain every part of human experience. And and let's not race to the finish line. Let's actually figure these things out and not just go, well, um, this probably works. Jam it in place and move on. Why not ask the questions and why not try to come up with real solid answers? And, And, you know, believe me, people who wrote these books... Many of them are scientists, far more than Michael Shermer is. They've got degrees that far outstrip anything he's got, and they're asking the question, why is that so scary to ask the question? Well, Jim Harold found this out when he first interviewed,
1: I think it was his first interview with Michael Shermer. I believe he's been on the show, the Paranormal Podcast, a couple of times. But in the one that I heard years and years ago, Michael Shermer was making his point about just all of paranormal phenomena, it kind of summed up the position nicely, which you're bringing up here is that, but he said like, okay, so all of the weird stuff that happens, we can't explain all the phenomena that seem to be bizarre that shouldn't, as I always like to say, things that happen that should not happen or seem to happen. And it seem impossible. Maybe there's 10% of that, we have no idea what that's about or how it works. And science has no clue at all so we take that 10% or 20 and we set it aside then we look at the 90 or 80% that we can approach and maybe figure out And this was a couple of interviews afterwards where Jim said like, what about that 10%? Uh, (laughs) That's the part we should be looking at. Why not go back and the stuff, because you can't. They have no answer for that.
0: And that's fine if you admit you have no answer for it. And frankly, that statement, if Michael Shermer said that, that's one of my favorite things he said. It's if you're honestly taking the stuff you don't understand and stuff that feels like whatever the tool of modern science is, if it doesn't seem like that tool is best suited to attacking the questions of that 10% of experience, then go ahead and set it aside, but don't say you've solved it. Set it aside, solve the other stuff, cure my cancer by all means. And then when uh, science gets to a point where it can explain that stuff... Then great. Then start applying it over there. The one thing I do like about him, and I know you've heard the story a million times and I dare not even bring it up, but since we're <laughs> talking about Michael Shermer, mm. he did have one experience in his life he couldn't explain. I will not even get into it, but it was a paranormal experience that he, he found puzzling. Which to his credit, he has admitted publicly. I know, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and I give him so much credit for I that. I do too. Yeah, because it, 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 he's it, 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 literally it. risking his career. Yeah. When you do that, when you're a scientist or you're a skeptic and you even allow the possibility, you risk really getting yeah. torn down well, by your peers. That's the beauty of uh, being on our side of the game. We can believe whatever we want. People already think we're crazy. Yeah, well, <laughs> well and, and, and forget belief. We're allowed to at least question. And shouldn't yes. everyone be allowed to question science most importantly? Shouldn't they be the ones that are allowed to question more than anyone? But they're not you question the wrong thing why are you even talking about that yeah how so dare you talk it's, it's about it's ignored aliens?
1: yeah so that's well, the answer you get into big
0: trouble but but Shermer had this experience he went on the record with it and then he went on the record with something else he said i can't explain it but because i do what i do i'm gonna have to leave it aside yeah. and just keep on being a skeptic right and i think that's a beautifully human way to approach something it's even though something flew in the face of my beliefs, I'm going to continue with my beliefs because that is who I am. And that is how I make my living. And that is where I am comfortable. And you know what? That's called being a human being. And I'm cool with that. It's
1: understandable. My only point about that, but it's like, why not let that be, you know what I'm saying? I was like, you don't have to explain that away, Accept it for what it is. It happened. He's telling us it happened. And uh, yeah, at the end of that article, He was saying, you know, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to have to dismiss it as a tremendous coincidence. My point is like, yeah, he has to because of his, what he does and who he is. But for me, it's like, I don't need to solve it. It was a very lovely experience. That's unexplainable.
0: The scientists who actively spend their careers studying near-death experiences, guys like Kenneth Ring and Bruce Grayson and many others that we've talked about, they would love nothing more. Than ironclad veridical proof <laughs> that these things take place. And there's a funny quote I want to read here. This is a part of an email exchange, and this is from the Handbook of Near Death Experiences. It's an email exchange between Bruce Grayson and uh Kenneth Ring. And Ken Ring said, and this is in regard to that final bit of proof, he said, There's so much anecdotal evidence that suggests experiencers can, at least sometime, perceive veridically during their NDEs. In other words, they can witness something they should not be able to witness that is happening in real life. He goes on to say, but isn't it true that in all this time there hasn't been a single case of a veridical perception reported by an nde -er under controlled conditions? I mean, 30 years later, it's still a null class as far as I know. Yes, excuses, excuses, I know, but really, wouldn't you have expected more than a few such cases at least by now? My tongue-in-cheek interpretation of this is the NDE is governed by the trickster who wants to tease us but never give us the straight dope so people are left to twist in the wind of ambiguity, and meanwhile, the search for the elusive white crow in the laboratory continues to frustrate researchers and gives ammunition to the skeptics. Maybe Raymond Moody is right about there being an imp in the parapsychological closet, and with a sense of humor too.
1: <laughs> well, that goes to all of our other uh, paranormal situations. Where, Everything uh, we've covered. You know, yeah, the
2: trickster. But it's starting to freak me out a little bit. I'm just going to. No, there, be, there's. There, well, it, well, okay,
0: like, so I recommend you read "The Trickster and the Paranormal" by George Hansen. Yes, you. And mentioned I'm talking that, to the yes, two yeah, of you. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah, talking yeah. to all right. the listeners because it addresses this specifically.
1: Two things I want to say here. One is a good quote here. It's from the editor of the Journal of Near Death Studies, Janice Minor Holden, talking about the Pam Reynolds case. Because, like you said, like great controls on that. Pretty good for somebody that's going to have their heart stopped under those conditions. And so what you get with a case like Pam Reynolds is, quote, provide imperfect data that can never result in definitive evidence, unquote. So you're not going to get there is what her point is. And she's one of the people that, uh, you know, is collecting the data and studying it. The target keeps moving away. The other thing I was going to say in regards to your, the trickster element is that there's a very simple test you could do. You don't need to do Pam Reynolds, you know, elaborate sensory deprivation. What you can do, you and I just talked about this earlier, Rich, is that this is something that Dr. Grayson and uh, more recently Dr. Samparnia experimented with, is having photos or images or symbols placed on high shelves or on top of cabinets where the only way you could see them is if you had floated up to the ceiling. In the surgery. In the, during in, the yeah, surgery. in the
2: operating room.
1: Right, and so uh, they'd both worked on patients whose hearts had been stopped for a period of time, either due to defibrillator insertion or cardiac arrest. So, you know, So it's a very easy thing to do. It's like, just tell me what it is, if you could float up to the, the ceiling and not tell anybody that they were there. So the patient has no idea. And you know what the outcome was after many years? So far, no patient of theirs has ever determined what those photos
0: are. Uh- well, Well, did any of the patients claim to have a near-death experience where they had an out-of-body experience and floated to the top of that room. I believe
2: so. I don't know about this. Also, I
0: think you should tell them that the photo is there. Don't tell
2: them before. Right. You know, but when they're on the table and we're like, we're about to put you under. By the way, there's a picture up there on that thing when you come back. If you have a near death experience, yeah, tell if tell us die on the table, Yeah, you're right. You're right. To, you're right. right. Take you're a look. Right. It's bad. Yeah,
0: there's a lawyer <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting yeah. real <laughs> wait, upset. Wait, wait. I could die.
2: <laughs> you didn't say that. I yeah. didn't. I didn't think of now my. Now count no. backwards <laughs> from a hundred. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Clearly, unless we all get on a plane together that goes down, one of us is going to die before the other two. Oh my God! It's the holiday oh season, boy. Scott. Yeah, it is I the know, holiday I season. I know
0: what you're going to say. Say it.
2: I think we need to make a deal that if it's possible for whoever goes first to reach out to the other two in some way that we need to make a pact to do that. Now, granted, I don't know anything about how that works. <laughs> right. Maybe it's painful. Maybe it's maybe you don't want to be in the position where you can communicate. You'd rather be somewhere else. But if it is possible, we should figure out a way to do that. And beyond, I can't figure this all out right now while we're recording but we should come up with a method, whether it's the famed Astonishing Legends dr 60 provided it lives that long, <laughs> or some other kind of way to get a message of some kind beyond... Flying a bird into a window—something well, that we can
0: do—that's definitive, and, and we should talk about this. I don't know, well, man. Well, you I know. mean, I, I'll probably know, go first. These, so. <laughs> uh, these kinds of deals have been made for many, many years, and yeah. were made among the earliest members of the Society of Psychical Research. Right. Well, hey. and there are stories in uh, Deborah Blum's book Ghost Hunters about how—and I forget which one, so I don't want to say—but. One of those early parapsychologists did pass away and then did get back in touch with his colleagues through a medium during a seance. And these dialogues and communications went on for quite some time. Seances are out of fashion
2: i don't let's bring it back no honestly let on the air i'm wondering about that why did they fall is it just because they're not culturally appropriate anymore or like they, they do a but reason. they're not
1: it's not a big media sensation and speaking of which man if houdini couldn't come back and say hi to his wife you know and there's somebody who went around debunking seances but still held out the belief he wasn't debunking the practice so much i believe as the charlatans that were doing it and getting people to believe, but he did uh, apparently had a pact with his wife, and she, I think, for ten years, on the anniversary of his death, would try and communicate with him. And after like the ten years, she said, "Well, obviously he's not around." Or ten minutes to him was like ten seconds. Like, wait, oh, 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 dang! That, you know,
0: that's that, a very famous story act. that's been mischaracterized. It has it? Yeah, it is. She did get idea. information. She did, and then was strongly. I don't want to say bullied... Into not saying... ...by his friends to retract that on the record. Rich Haddam, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) With the Uh, insult, We're so glad you're here. You can
2: put us straight. Wow, that's fascinating. Again, I don't know how the rules work. We're going to make a pact. I'm just going to say that. We're not going to do it right now. We're saying this now. It's on... Tape, as it were, is talk about something that you'll need a seance to get in touch with. Is this the only way
0: I'm going to get back on this show is I'm dead (laughs) (laughs) and and, and it'll be an EVP.
2: By the way, this is uh, the Astonishing Legends idea
0: of a holiday show. (laughs) Speaking of which, (laughs) and this brings it full circle, doesn't it? Yes. Because we were talking about how this was a Christmas show and and how there are elements of the near-death experience that actually can provide great hope. And sort of fulfill the dream of all mankind of an everlasting experience, the dream of immortality, an ongoing life. And at Christmas, it's sort of a holiday about hope. And as we discussed it, I kind of mentioned that I have a theory or at least a way of interpreting a famous Christmas story as a near-death experience. And I'm probably not the first, but I've got to tell you, if anything is a near-death experience, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, is a literary near death experience. It really does fit the form, doesn't it? The more I thought about it, the more I was shocked. And the story has been so durable. It was written very quickly in the fall of 1843, it was published, it became a sensation immediately and has only become more popular worldwide. And there's something about this story that registers with people everywhere, generation after generation. And I think it might be the near-death experience structure of the story. Do you think that is because people want to believe, or do you think
2: it's because people already believe, or it's a thing and it's quantified?
0: Like the best literature, it sort of taps into something that we all intuitively feel people don't question the experience that Scrooge has. It makes a weird kind of sense, either as a ghost story or as a dream or a near-death experience. I mean, think about it for a second. He never dies in the story. No, but
1: it's a a negative NDE. Well, in a way, (laughs) but it's also positive. I mean, we'll go (laughs) through
0: the steps. Marley's ghost. Okay, so first he is visited by a dead person that he knew. Yeah. Okay, that's the first thing that happens, and that happens in a near-death experience. My uncle, my aunt, my colleague... Jacob Marley. Jacob Marley comes down and says, you're going to have a near-death experience, and it's going to begin. And the first thing that happens is he's visited by the ghost of Christmas past, and he is taken to have a life review. He goes into his childhood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He goes into his young adulthood with Fezziwig. We meet his uh, fiancée, who breaks up with him because he has changed. He's literally looking. There is a spirit guide. Now we're talking about someone he doesn't know a spirit guide taking him on his life review and remaining quite impartial as Scrooge has an emotional experience looking at the events of his life and how he conducted himself and the ghost doesn't judge, but Scrooge does a level of self-judgment. Then I would say that the ghost of Christmas present is an example of an out-of-body experience and a good example of the veridical experience Mm -hmm. where even though he's at home, he is flying out around town. literally Looking yeah. in windows and seeing exactly how the Cratchits are celebrating their Christmas. The next morning, he can wake up and go, I know what you did last night. I saw you. <laughs> right. I was looking in your window. And he and he can provide veridical evidence.
2: That's the word of the day. <laughs> veridical. <laughs> veridical
0: yeah. is the word of the day.
2: It was in a, a piece of our script or outline. You wrote it. And I was like, oh, yeah. look, he misspelled vertical. Uh, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that the first thing you thought was, uh, Adam's an idiot. <laughs>
2: Yeah, not to know, a I word do I don't, not, don't know. No, I. <laughs> uh, touche. Explain to the audience and me because I've forgotten what veridical means.
0: A verifiable, realistic experience. Thank
2: you. Yes, the true, bordering on the true. Uh, you know, the truthiness. Yeah, yeah true, something yeah, true. true. Forrest is looking at his yeah. computer. Just for the record, um, I want everyone to know.
1: No, it is in the script, but it's also something I believe either Bruce Grayson said or. Uh,
0: go on. <laughs> go on. <laughs> On, it's so the ghost of Christmas present he goes around he sees what's happening even as he is dead or asleep in his apartment he witnesses how other people celebrate Christmas and then the ghost of Christmas yet to come visions of the future and this is the negative nde this is where he where he really goes through a, a very frightening experience right.
1: well Christmas present gives him a warning of sorts to beware of uh want. And uh the you know, two the, oh, the two the, 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 two, the scary ignorance. two children yeah. under his robe. But it's also it's kind of a um cautionary tale that he's getting through direct communication because the ghost of Crispus Future doesn't talk to him. He is kind of a psychopomp, as we mentioned in our yeah. Grim Reaper episode, because he takes him around but he doesn't pass any judgment he's not killing him directly
0: he's just showing him things and he doesn't say anything right yeah um but he but he shows him a very grim future if he doesn't change exactly. the way he's living right. and then he wakes up yeah a changed man yeah. in exactly the way people describe being changed by a near death experience. He's suddenly a different guy. Yeah. Right. It's a and good point. He, I don't know if he's more religious, but he's certainly more spiritual. He's charitable. More generous, yes. charitable, and it changes him for the rest of his life. Well, here's the thing. He immediately that
1: morning feels better. And that's the point of it. It's like, he didn't do anything that morning. What he did rich and Scott was he changed his Thank attitude. You. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? He had an attitude of gratitude. He woke up that morning and Why he do I feel really like you're feel talking down
0: to me right now? Because I I have to keep a pounding this into you. That's why. <laughs> what's beautiful is that Dickens, in the final paragraphs of the story, even addresses the skeptics. He says, <laughs> Yeah. And I'm not quoting, but he basically says, you know, there are people who laughed at Scrooge. You know, in the ensuing years and for the rest of his life, there were those who laughed and there will always be those who laugh at a, a deep personal experience and the way it affects someone. If it is experienced authentically, there will always be those who snicker, but it didn't matter to Scrooge because he was the one who had the experience and he didn't care if people laughed or didn't laugh. He was going to live his life the way he now saw fit to live it, which was full of joy, hope and gratitude and holding the spirit of Christmas in his heart every day of the year. God bless us, everyone.
1: Ho, 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 that's gonna wrap up the last show of 2018. Scott and Forrest would like to thank everyone who continued to listen to Astonishing Legends this year. They'll be back in three weeks on January 12th with a new show. Special thanks to Richard Haddam, who was a very good boy this year. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin.
0: Hi, my name is Jasmine Barker.
1: Hi, I'm Christopher Vigneault, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends.
0: I'm Danielle Lyons.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel.
1: But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on
2: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com/slash Astonishing Legends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. 911,
0: what's your emergency? Uh
2: yes, I'd like to report a robbery. There's a fat man that came down my chimney, he ate all my cookies, he drank all my milk, he left
1: a bunch of junk under my Christmas tree, and now I got reindeer poops all over my yard.